Hello all and welcome to another exciting episode of Lorebeards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Super exciting episode. I am I'm genuinely hyped as hell for this one. I really like Remedia. This is gonna be a really fun one for me because I have written tons of stuff about Remedia over the course of the last 20 years or so of my life. So this is going to be one of the ones where I can really get to grips with some of the material that both I've written and has also been adapted from stuff that I've written. So it's really fun to see how it's spun off in different directions to perhaps how I originally intended it. Which for me is always a fun thing because I get to see how others use stuff. Um, but it also reminds me of most of the conversations I've had with Graham Davis, who established much of what we understand as Warhammer lore from Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay today. And the number of times I had a conversation where I say something like, hey, Graham, I wrote this. And he says, that's not what I wanted it to be. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's going to be a fair bit of that one, particularly with Mermidia, because Mermidia was originally created by Graham Davis. So we'll jump into that almost certainly as our initial starting point. But um, I'll give everyone a couple of minutes to arrive since... Uh, Things are still gathering out there. And whilst we do that, a couple of things that we should always say at the beginning of all of our streams, which is make sure as you're sitting out there on Twitch or YouTube or alternatively, I don't know, pirating it somewhere. Who knows? Come find us. Press like. It makes an enormous difference to us, a huge difference. It's one of the nicest things you can possibly do to say thank you very much to both myself and the good and marvelous lore master of Sotek over there. It makes us so happy. A little like little eagles flying in the sky, little Vermidian eagles. Uh, that, so do make sure you press those likes. the uh, algorithm gods who are much hungrier and nastier than the chaos gods. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> likes for the algorithm god. Likes for the skull, the throne of likes. Yeah, whatever. All righty. Um, <laughs> let's get started on everything. Um, first things first. Topic, the mysteries of Myrmidia. Myrmidia is the goddess of strategy and warfare. She was initially popped into Warhammer as a setting in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition. She was written by Graham Davis, who handled all of the... Hey, Hamid, I love your timing right when I'm going off with my start with my intro. I can almost I, feel I, my fear. I told yeah, you. yeah, totally. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> your name is Lost Beer. Yeah, I considered doing Lost Beer. Really considered it, but didn't in the end. Um, and Sean Schultz pops in with thanks for all the videos. Thank you so much, Sean. Super appreciated. Thank as is obviously the super chat. And I can't express how much of a, a difference it makes. And whilst the super chats coming in does interrupt us, they are half of the fun of this. Um, so Myrmidia, uh, I've already forgotten it all. She is the goddess of strategy and warfare. She was initially popped into the game in first edition Warhammer Fantasy roleplay. Uh, where she was added by Graham Davis. Now, the game had already been written in terms of the core mechanics um, by Rick Priestley. And the Games Workshop team reached out to the role players um, that had been hired by Games Workshop and been writing a variety of stuff for White Dwarf and similar and asked them to effectively run with it and create the rest of the Warhammer world. And that is where things like Myrmidia came from. Now, for those of you who don't know your classical real-world lore, Myrmidia initially was Athena. Now, there is 
lots of ways I could try and dance around this and try and pretend that it was something original and new and super fantastic. It wasn't. Mermidia is basically the Warhammer version of Athena. If you don't know Athena or Palace Athene or many of the other names that she went by, I do recommend go looking up an article in Wikipedia that says Athena and have a good wee read through because you'll get a very good idea of what the first edition of Athena was loosely based upon. In particular, there's one image by, of all people, I think it's Rembrandt, actually, it's a Van Gogh, whoever, it's Rembrandt. Rembrandt, which is Palace Athene, and it pretty much is, as far as Warhammer First Edition is concerned, an image of Mermidia. It's well worth having a quick look up, if you fancy. Volkmidia Part 2, go. <laughs> Volkmidia? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, um, thanks, me for Ed. Disturbed shipper out there in the Warhammer world? <laughs> <laughs> that would be one I'm hell telling of you, Mermidia's into bald men. I know this. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Mermidia, she's initially positioned, is much like Athena, but an aspect and just a bit of her. And that's largely her aspect of a goddess of war. Athena was uh, seen as the goddess of war for Athens troops. Um, and in a similar fashion, Athena was the goddess of strategic warfare to pitch her against and put her in comparison to Ulrich, the god of war, um, who was the far more ferocious, far more direct, far more bloody god from the north, where Mermidia was very much the god from the south. And I'm almost ashamed to say Mermidia doesn't change in terms of her overall honourable disposition, goddess of the south, uh, spear-wielding nature. Hey, Jonathan Scott, let's drop in. Don't forget to talk about how Mermidia's divine portfolio includes being the patron of house cleaners and how her divine servants are called... <laughs> <laughs> Mermaids. <laughs> Holy shit, Jonathan! You are wow. starting them off on fire. I, um, <laughs> I, for a second, I was like, I was like, is that like Where's a really this weird joke? I just never read, and then I got to the end. And it's like, uh, <laughs> oh, that was terrible. Um, oh my god! I admit. So, through the course of the next <laughs> many years, Mermidia does not change that much, but. The focus of attention on the goddess does change because to begin with, in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition, Mermidia is a primary goddess of the old world. To give you an idea of her importance to the old world in, to, in comparison to, say, Sigmar, Sigmar was given a paragraph. Mermidia was given a page. A whole page. Sigmar <laughs> was given a tiny little paragraph because Sigmar was only a god of the empire, which is one small part of the overall old world. Mermidia was a goddess of the old world, known across the old world, but more prominently in the south. And this is something that because of the focus that Games Workshop has on the empire over the course of the unfolding years up to about second edition Warhammer, um, really does sideline the goddess. She pops up here and there. I'll give you a few examples. <laughs> In the Empire Army list, when it was released in 1990, I'm going to guess two. I'm probably making that up. Um, so the Empire Army list, that's the very first army list for Warhammer 4th Edition, was released. Oh, there's a nice one there from Biofoot. Hey, Biofoot! Breaking news. Balthazar Gelt and Elspeth von Dragon had two children. They were sent away from the world through a magical portal and ended up in a distant planet. Those two children have now have a podcast <laughs> discussing lore. Man, I, I, I think I think Andy would be more upset about Gelt as a secret father than Bellacor as a secret father. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am purposely wearing yellow today in Mermidia. 
owner. Yeah, sure. Northern Gale. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever helps you sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, so screw you, Biofootbit. <laughs> Nevertheless, thank you so much. Super appreciated. Um, so in fourth edition, uh, Warhammer, the Knights of the Blazing Sun were giving their own rules. Um, now, their own rules were exactly the same as the rest of the Knights' rules, because at that point, the Knights didn't really have separate rules for each one of the units. That wouldn't come out until much later in a White Dwarf article, Knightly Orders article. Um, and the Knights of the Blazing Sun were mentioned here. Now, the Knights of the Blazing Sun were the, the primary, at this point, Knightly Order for the uh, entirety of the Cult of Myrmidia. But this would also change with time as they became a far more empire-centric order because they were positioned in the Empire Army List, after all. Um, other than that, there was also a particular focus upon Myrmidians in a way that had never been done almost up to this point with uh, Warhammer... Uh, what was it called again? War... Uh, the Reckoning game. Warhammer uh, Age of Reckoning. That's the one. Yes. Um, Warhammer Age of Reckoning, where the Knight of Remedia was given a prominent position as one of the very few playable characters that you could have in that game. And given that that game only had like maybe four for the entire empire, I can't remember if it was Witch Hunter, Mermidian, uh, Bright Wizard, and, Bright Wizard, and uh, Warrior Priest. Warrior That's Priest. Yeah, of course it was. Of course it was Warrior Priest. Really, um, <laughs> <a> healer. Yeah. <laughs> duh. Um, so there was only four. So that was given a special prominence, um, something that was unexpected by many at the time. I remember when it came out, everyone went, really? A Knight of Remedia? Um, And something that that game did, that the battle game just did not do, was it made the entire cult, much as they did with the Sigmarites and everyone else in that one, entirely open as to which gender you wish to present as. You could be a man or a woman or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, that was entirely free. And the number of uh, pieces of art that started being created because of this, of female Myrmidians, um, was relatively important because it made a bit of an impact on how people would perceive the order later. It was also the point where the Sigmarite order went from being entirely patriarchal in terms of its earlier renditions to suddenly having women everywhere, not maybe just in one little tiny little corner of the cult. <laughs> this is why I'm here now for Sundere Law. <laughs> so welcome to Astalia, gentlemen. Totally. We're not talking about gut today. <laughs> <laughs> Get over it. We're moving on. Yes, uh, I do actually want to uh, chime in real quick about... Go, uh, go, go, go. add my own th thought of that Age of Reckoning really did have a much larger impact than a lot of people, I think, often appreciate, which is good, mm. in that it massively expanded on uh, the ideas of uh, what Sigmar's favorite leader from the Iceni tribe of Rome to Balthazar Kelt. You get the twin uh, tail of Sigmar for that. Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> But, That's yeah, a good one, Hammond. Yeah, <laughs> and we talked about this during the uh, Mordheim episode as well, where Age of Reckoning really is what brought back for a lot of people the idea of female warrior priests of Sigmar. Um, and because they even addressed it in the Black Library novel, they had to go along with the video games. But the Knights of the Blazing Sun were a huge deal, and it also greatly expanded their power set because they really dove mm. into the idea of, oh, yeah, they're manifesting Mermidia's power in order to have like divine blessings around them that buff allies they have these area of effect buffs that allow them to mm. give auras or they're you know shouting out commands or strategies to keep their allies organized and it was a really big moment and i think made the night of the blazing sun especially because of the artwork uh probably the most popular nightly order um and for for people that were fans of warhammer fantasy 
Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating one because the Empire Army list at that point offered the Knights of the White Wolf and they got the Cavalry Hammers. They offered the Knights of the Blazing Sun, the Reichsguard. That was pretty much it. That was the Empire Army list, as far, pretty much the Empire Army as far as uh, Knights were concerned. It wasn't until later that they expanded out that significantly because by the time we'd be hitting White Dwarf, I don't know, about uh, almost 200, there must have been an I don't know, maybe about 50 knightly orders mentioned in various corners of the Empire. Oh, yeah. And a lot of those got their own special rules, including the Knights of the Blazing Sun. Um, and that then became later editions of Warhammer. But we're not quite there yet. It's fair to say that even though the cult itself got expanded relatively, in fact, I'd say a good chunk by that game. Um, it added tons of new fun rules. It added quite a lot of extra lore, but it was, again, still Empire-specific. And that goddess was not Empire-specific. Um, and that was always something that sat in the background. If you go and take any of the various novels, for example, where there's a mention to Mermidia, she's always mentioned as coming from the South because it's about the only detail that they actually had for her because there was so little written about her. Sigmar, by comparison, was getting extra block of lore, extra block of lore, extra block of lore, adding on and adding on to the point that by the time the second edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay came around and um, we were sitting down as the team that was organized organizing the Tome of Salvation, um, there was, bluntly speaking, let's just use numbers. Let's say there was a total of um, up to a potential of 100% per god that was written for us to draw from. Sigmar had 100%. It was already out there. Uh, the job of writing Sigmar, which was my job, was nothing more than distilling everything down and getting those key points across. That was it. It was mm. a matter of organizing what was currently disorganized and presenting it. The Cult of Ulrich, by comparison, was super exciting because they just released the Storm of Chaos. And in Storm of Chaos, the Cult of Ulrich got massively expanded, which was super fun because suddenly there was all the old material to try and synthesize with all the new material. It didn't quite match. And for someone who wants these things to match, I had an opportunity to do so. You may have noticed that I was doing the Cults of War in this book. Because I was. I was doing Ulrich, Sigmar, <laughs> and importantly, Mermidia. Now, Ulrich had about 60 in our fallacious just made up count. About 60% of source. Mermidia had about two. There was almost nothing. Um, and this was particularly distressing because we did have the Dogs of War army list that come out for 5th edition. And mm. the Dogs of War army list, which was an army list that was focused on Tilia, all the way through, there's a lovely little chance about how important Mermidia was, how important Mermidia is to the South, but literally no real detail. Exactly what is the cult of uh, Mermidia? Who is Mermidia? What does she represent? What is she? Who knows? Who is this woman? Ah! <laughs> um, can no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Oh no, I'm going into a completely different set of historical backgrounds here. So loosely, I was in a very difficult position because I had to effectively write the same amount of material and the same quality of material that I was writing for Ulrich and I was writing for Sigmar but for Mermidia. Not only that though, because she had been so underwritten previously, I also wanted to write more to try and ensure that there was a certain level of balancing, because all the other books already covered Ulrich and Sigmar. She, they didn't need more, so to speak. Or they didn't need more. Ah, ha, ha. Spawn! Carrying on. Um, so uh, I was in a position where I was left going, what do I do with her? Um, and I had a good sit down 
Um, and I thought back to Graham's original intention, which was that she was effectively the Athena of the Warhammer world. But she wasn't at the moment. She was only one tiny aspect of Athena. Athena originally being a city goddess of Athens with a whole host of other tales attached to her. And again, if you want to get an idea of what life is like in the Warhammer world in terms of how they present their myths, I actually recommend going and just reading the Wikipedia article on Athena. It's not very well written because clearly it's just a mishmash of everyone's thoughts all slapped together and edited. But nevertheless, it shows you just how contradictory all the tales are. All of the problems that we as great big lore masters of whatever who try to remember and know everything um, are, and we like everything fitting together, real life isn't like that. And the mm. Warhammer world is, thankfully, in some respects, also like that because it's had so many different authors writing the same thing. But go take a check at it. Sometimes she's the child of one god or one thing or child of Triton or child of something else. Um, they all contradict each other. And that was good for me because it meant that I could re-examine the goddess, but it also meant that I could take a look at the original intentions of what Athena did and go, well, what would happen if that sort of goddess was in the Warhammer world? Eh, and we're going to get a little bit of crossover here. And suddenly a tale popped into my head. What if I did something that Warhammer world suggests could happen, but has never happened anywhere, ever, but definitely could happen? I had a little think, I had a little think, and a pitch started building up because obviously whenever you're about to rewrite, completely rewrite something in the Warhammer world, Games Workshop would probably like to know about that first. <laughs> surprise! <laughs> so I, yeah, it's not like, surprise, rewrite! Woohoo! Um, because there's nothing like sending in a manuscript, which is, say, 60,000 words long, that they don't expect. That's a bad idea. It's always <laughs> worth getting them on side first. So um, I had a little bit of um, time to have a think. An idea came to mind, um, and I was in a lucky position because at that point, I was working directly with Black Library um, in their forums, and I had access to everybody behind the scenes. And I was chatting to Marco, who was the head of Black Library. I was chatting to all the development team in Black Industries. Now, if you don't know what Black Industries are, if you're just coming at this having never heard of the role-play game before, Black Industries were Games Workshop's role-playing wing. Um, they handled all of the role-playing games. In the end, that meant two games, but hey, better than none. Um, one of those games being Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. It was a part of Black Library. Um, so I had direct access to all the people. So I could just sit and chat, which was really handy on the forums in the background going, how about, and if I, and uh, maybe, and uh, loosely at the back of my head, I had the strong, strong awareness that Sigmar quite clearly and demonstrably a beat immortal and ascended. If you want to be heretical, he's a demon prince. A demon prince of Ulrich, <laughs> arguably. Um, yep. In that, he is an ascended being. He once was mortal, and he has now ascended. It's exactly the same as what the Chaos Gods do. They send people to the top of the world to have a big, huge scrap, and the one that they favor most either becomes spawn, because, hey, fickle, or alternatively, they ascend to demonhood. Um, they become gods. Minor gods in the greater scheme of things, but most certainly gods. If we're looking at Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, you'd probably be looking at a single paragraph, not a whole page. Um, they are <laughs> they're minor gods, they're not big, huge doodads. And but this is established. Sigmar's done it, whole manner of chaos worshipping creatures have done it, and possibly others have in a variety of different places across the world been mortal and been raised. In particular, and I'm gonna call this one out because it is relevant to the story I was building. 
Ronald. Ronald at this point was mortal and has raised himself to divinity by tricking Shalia. This is the story at the moment. It's only written in a few places and is very rarely more than a single line up to a paragraph, but the story is repeated again and again. A mortal who's raised himself up. I'm going to pop in there with a quick one from Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. It always seemed to me that Remedio was the catch-all goddess of the human pantheon. Need a deity to be a patron of something unspecified? Use mate. Hell, yo, don't. You have no idea how much that definitely became the case. Um, and I agree, <laughs> and I'm about to, um, in some in some regards, about to rant about that. I'll try not to, because, you know, so technically, well, about something. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, 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 want to I want to hear the rant, though. <laughs> <laughs> the rant is coming. I, I, I um, knew what this episode was going to be when <laughs> we added it to the schedule. I, I know what I was signed up for. Yeah, yeah we, we all have our strong points and our, and, and our rant points, and this is one of mine. So, um, an idea was percolating in my mind. We had an established god who was the god of trickery, who tricked his way to divinity, and we'd had a god who had ascended to divinity. And I was beginning to build up um, a Sigmarite diatribe to a Bretonian, attempting to persuade that Bretonian to come on side, uh, because obviously they worshipped the lady, and they were very noble, and they thought that was important. Um, and, it, and the Sigmarite was like, no, Sigmar, Sigmar is the god of humanity as far as I'm concerned, and this is why. And I started building an argument because, importantly, Sigmar is the only god to have reached divinity, which means I had to, at that point, tackle Ronald. I had to, because I wanted Sigmar to be special as far as the Empire was concerned. Now, mm -hmm. I had very recently at that point, because it had been uh, recently written um, by Robin Laws, I think, um, the Angelica Fleischer, uh, I think it's a trilogy, um, a set of novels about Angelica Fleischer uh, who wanders around Battlefield stealing stuff. Um, and she'd made her way all the way through Blackfire Pass down to a, a big monastery to Shalia down there. And there was a child prophet of Shalia called Pergunda, who you will notice pops up several times in various books. It's even in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, fourth edition. Mm. Uh, patron god of rant, Remedia's housewife has <laughs> Oh, 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 I'm not going to let my wife hear that. The sexism <laughs> implicit in that would set her off on a rant, which would sort of undermine her position. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I'll have to rant on her behalf. No, this is just not working. <laughs> Let's carry on. <laughs> Let's move on swiftly. Uh-oh. Uh uh, so we used, um, and I wrote a little bit about Pergunda, um, who was receiving the divine wisdom of Shalya. And um, it's a nice little snippet at the very beginning of the book, but it started the undermining and supporting of the Sigmarite position too. And that was that the greatest trick that Ronald ever pulled was that he'd never been mortal. He had tricked all humans into thinking that he'd ever been one of them. It was one enormous joke. In fact, much of Ronald's worship was about understanding the great joke of reality and what reality was and the fact that there was a distinction between mortality and divinity because the whole concept of a demon prince means that everyone is, to a degree, immortal because of their immortal soul. Everyone is, to mm -hmm. a degree, a god. Um, and the entire stories around Ronald were nothing more than a um, metaphor for understanding the great joke of reality. Um, so having pinned that one down, I was like, that means Ronald was never a god. I mean, was never immortal. Excellent. But I wanted to do the last one and the most important one, one that is often represented by Ulrich. Ulrich is commonly described as having come down to the Warhammer world and wandered around having a good laugh, having kids with 
creating children of Ulrich and doing the rest. How could I bring that one in? Now, the Ulrich in stories is that Ulrich himself either does it or it's just myth. The cult itself claims it's myth, which is important, which means that it doesn't need to be addressed by my Sigmarite, because as far as he's concerned, it's myth and rubbish and stupid. Excellent. <laughs> We're fine there. But the theology of that was important, what was happening there. So I shelved that, figured it out, and then I did my pitch. We got there in the end. And the pitch was, hi, I want Mermidia to be mortal. Ping. I don't want her to be mortal to begin with, though. What I want is all of the aspects of Athena, which we know and understand already, we can interlace that as what she once was. She was a greater, broader deity. She wasn't just the goddess of war. That is what she becomes because she hit the Warhammer world. And we all know what happens when you hit the Warhammer world. War! Um, so she comes we, as a mortal to the Warhammer your world. Complimentary Warhammer. <laughs> yeah, <definitely. laughs> You're gonna need she was, this. She was handed over her weapon. She was like, "Oh well, here I go. Let's go to war then." Um, and a story was required for that. I said, "I want to build a story that supports the Sigmarites' view that Sigmar is super important, and they say that super super important because Sigmar was a mortal who is elevated to godhood." Mermidia won't be. She'll be a goddess who chooses to manifest as a mortal. And the reason that she can do that, because gods expressly cannot manifest at all. Expressly. They cannot mm. do it. But she could because she chose not to manifest as a god. She did something relatively unique and arguably stupid because it puts you at the whims of everybody else. You are completely at the whims of what mortality in the real world offers. And you could argue, if you wish to argue these things, that the divinity has been vacated, the god is no longer there. There's all sorts of nonsense you could try and make up if you wish. But the important thing was, she wasn't breaking the rules. She was just taking a circuitous route around them. And she had <laughs> reasons for doing so. And my general pitch was, here's all the theological stuff. I can sum that up in three sentences there. And the other one is, I want Mermidia to have done this so that we can now build a story for why Estalia and Tilia are intrinsically tied to that goddess more than any other. They have a personal experience of that goddess, and that goddess is bluntly theirs. Mm. And they went, hell yeah. Yeah, that sounds great, because we've got fuck all to do. Well, who is Mermidia anyway? Go wild, Andy. We trust you. And I was like, <laughs> woohoo! Um, so I then spent about the next, ooh, uh, I only had a two-month writing uh, turnaround writing time for the whole book, as I recall. So I spent about three weeks of that alone working out the Meridian aspect and then building up an entire monastery to put in a later part of the book to undermine literally everything I'd written. Um, because in the end, myths constantly contradict each other and the truth that lies behind them is very rarely understood. So Meridia got completely changed from the ground up. She was still the goddess of strategy, warfare, and all of that noble warfare was very important. But now mm. there was a reason why she was this goddess. Now there was a reason why the Empire only saw this. And this is the reason. Now, if you go by the current writing of it, this happened 2,500 years ago. It was not originally intended as this. It was originally intended to be 2,200 years ago, approximately 300 IC. So that's 2,500. We're assuming here that the time is the end times, 2,500 and about 20, approximately. Mm, yeah. And 2,200 years ago, or 2,500, if you go with current timing, Mermidia manifests as a mortal. Now, why does that happen? In times past, 
as we go back, and I might pass over um, to this side for some of this because I'm pretty sure that Sotek <laughs> knows most of the story of um, um, Mermidia's youth. Um, but I, but I, I know some fair bits. I I am going to. We're, we're coming to a point where I'm going to uh, grotesquely insert myself. But yes, and I, it has to be crazy. done. But uh... um, because I will, I, I can rant for hours. Know, so, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you carry on a little longer, and then and then I'll we'll, kick the door we'll do in, a, so don't worry. We'll do a little bit of the past first. <laughs> so <laughs> way way back in the middle. Wait, 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 oh, wait. we got a double run here. Yeah, so of necromancy. Hmm. Is is that by any chance Nagash? Well, no. That well, he, he works the grave shift, so if anything, it, uh -huh. he's got, he, well, he's got Heinrich Kimmler. Uh, he does. That's why I was like, that's not the CEO. Is that the CEO? He would call, he would call himself the CEO. Yeah, you're totally right. There's he no would. way he would acknowledge <laughs> anybody else. Thanks very uh, much for that. That's enormously appreciated. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, Balthazar <laughs> Kilt. <laughs> You've been sitting there for freaking hours trying to figure out the best puns on this. I, I like how I like how it's almost implied that Hammond took two weeks to go, to go off with that one. <laughs> He's been sitting going, I gotta figure out a way to, to make this one okay. work. So way back in the midst of time, before the time of Sigmar. Thank you, Hammond. We are looking at uh, the old world and what it was. And it was filled with various tribes, often of migrating humans that were moving from one place to the next. Myrmidia attaches herself to one of them. Do not think that this is rare. It happened to almost all the tribes. Ulrich attached himself to, for example, the... <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Ouch. Um, Ulrich, for example, attached himself uh, to the Teutigans. Um, You'll find that Moore attached himself to the Ostermarkers, which we don't need to discuss too much about, but definitely did. Um, various gods are associated with them. This is touched upon at the beginning of the Tome of Salvation, where each of the tribes had their own totem deity. Um, the Talutans had Tal, for example. Um, and this totem deity uh, very much grounded them in terms of their personality and worship. Did the god choose them? Did they make the god? There's lots of different ways you could approach this. Mm. But the people of Tylos, they Good got Mermidia. And this is where I'll pass over so that you can do your Tylosy bit because I'm sure you can say a good bit here, or would you rather I continue? Uh, no, no, no. I like. I, I think. I think this is the point that I would like to interrupt. Yes. Uh, uh, good. So uh, I can't talk forever. Yeah, I, I, I love so much uh, what you did with this character and the like. A lot of the implications that it has for the setting going forward. So Tylos, uh, for anyone that's not familiar with it, is uh, depending on which source you look at, one of the greatest cities of man to ever be built. Um, according to some of the myths, it was uh, it's positioned up, like kind of almost right smack in the middle between where Talia and Astalia now stand. Even Blight. Yes, is is now known by a different name. Even Blight. <laughs> um, but it was positioned very conveniently between these two great nations, or what would become these two great nations. And it was a wonderful place, supposedly, that the people there had a patron god. And this goddess uh, was, at that time, the goddess of civilization. And she, because she was a goddess of civilization, granted them incredible amounts of knowledge. Could any group of humans or anyone for that matter survive in the Warhammer world without a patron god? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, they would have just been wandering around, possibly worshipping local 
uh, spirits, demons, or whatever other things may have been around. Just because some did doesn't mean all did. But all of the great tribes of Sigmar were associated with um, a single god. The Hawklanders, for example, uh, they were represented by Lupos, who later on was largely absorbed by Ulrich. Yeah, and like a lot of a lot of tribes had like really small personal gods and stuff like that. Like you had like um, everything that happened down in Lucini with the the twin gods and stuff like that. Um, it, a lot of people and like not, a lot of them didn't necessarily start off as gods. They were just spirits that over time became more elevated and stuff like that. Anyway, um, so Mermidia, this goddess of civilization, not a goddess of warfare, not a goddess of battle. She, if anything, she was a pacifist god. Uh, very explicitly stood against using violence because violence kind of stood antithetical to the concept of building up civilization, of uniting people. And the people of Tylos, with her guidance and her blessings, blossomed, exploded into making a city that was an absolute monolith. And it helped that they, through their abilities at diplomacy, um, had a dwarf hold right underneath them that they were very good friends with. And the dwarfs lended their own knowledge and uh, abilities to them to help them construct a city the likes of which would make any in the old world weep for not being able to compare. And the people of Tylos, um, according to some sources, were said to be so advanced that they themselves were like almost a higher order of humans. And all the people that lived around them were mere peasants. People who only lived to work out in the very rich, plentiful fields that surrounded Tylos for hundreds of miles so all those resources could be sent back to the capital. But there was a problem, which was that uh, Tylos, or known as Kasvar in some myths... Uh, <clears throat> uh, just to uh, interrupt slightly, Tylos um, is, is both the name of the city, as it's originally understood under Old Classical, or... Mm the name of the person who led the city, which is also known by Kazvar. Um, Kavzar, I always get the viz and the ziz. Oh, yeah, stuff. so do I. Um, Kavzar. Um, also not, but it also goes by another couple of names, because I've also seen a couple of other myths elsewhere which are direct, um, directly related to that, which was significantly expanded both through White Dwarf and in Children of the Horned Rat. Mm. Yeah, so this uh, city whether led by King Tylos or just uh, that haven't, maybe that was the founder, who knows anyway, but uh, they built up and up and up and up, but they're one of the big issues that they did not realize in their own arrogance and would not be realized until many generations later is that thanks to the combination of having the dwarfs and, but especially Mermidia, they kind of fell into a trap that civilization can offer in a lot of mythologies which is that they kind of grew complacent uh, and they kind of became so secure in the idea that they were somehow better and uh, greater than everything around them. They were better than all the humans around them. No enemy could touch them. The greenskins were no threat to them at this time. And as they continued to build up, they became very ass assured. I had to rock, them up. <laughs> rock the cats. <laughs> Hey, uh, Charcoal Briquette, can you detail the cult in the Reichland and how the different orders interact and detail any named characters? Example, the Eagle of North. Yes, I can. I can yes. tell you where the Eagle of North got his name from. We will We will get into that. Uh, we certainly uh, will. We get to kind of like the modern modern times. But um, so Tylos, 
they became so arrogant that they started to become possessed of the idea that they were better than everybody else. Everybody else. Every other race, whether ancient race or newer race, all the other humans. And they started to kind of look at the gods and go, you know what? The gods should appreciate us more. Like, we should be able to go to where the gods are. Good try, Armin. Chasm. I mean, you tried. You tried. <laughs> That's a much weaker one. But it's made me laugh, so you win. And <laughs> they they end up pulling off what is fundamentally just the Tower of Babel. Um, which is that they decide they're going to build a tower to show off how awesome they are. They're going to build an impossible edifice. Something that would make the dwarves, the elves, the gods themselves look and go, wow, the people of Tylos are truly the best. And to their credit, the tower they build is insane. It is incredibly impressive through a mix of magic, prayer, technology, engineering, however you want to look at it. They make something obscene. However, they were so prideful that they couldn't settle with it just being very impressive. It had to be impossibly impressive to the point that even they couldn't do it. But they were too stubborn to admit they couldn't do it. This took like decades, if not time. Yeah, yeah, time. We don't have any specific numbers. But they built and built and built. But it finally got to the point where they, it, it whether you want to look at it as maybe later generations wanted the achievement but didn't necessarily want to put in the work. Or if it was just that it got to the point where it was literally impossible for them to finish the arrogant project they started off with. Regardless, they got to a point where they kind of hit a wall and they weren't able to finish it at least easily at all. And they were upset about it. And at this point, Tylos had become a very dark city in a sense of that their level of arrogance had uh, in versions of the myth had come to the point where they were abusing the people around them, deeply abusing them kind of in the sense that if you look back at Setra and Nagash, the way they would treat people to complete their grand designs, there's always a point where it stops being, Hey, you know, let's maybe spend good money and all this stuff. Unless it becomes more, you know what? Y'all don't need to eat as much as you say you do. And let's maybe start sending out armies to like bring people, maybe start enslaving people. So we have more workers and let's make sure these people stay out in the city. They don't deserve to be treated as full citizens. They're kind of out there. Uh, Talos be a parallel development to Kimri. One kept humility, had to strive instead of indulge, and didn't invite chaos in, and so survived to expand. There's some... I, I don't know if the words humility and Kimri should ever be that close to each other in a sentence. No, they shouldn't. <laughs> one of the... Arguably, one of the reasons that Kemri never really fell in the same way is because it's so far from the gates. But that's a completely different story. And yeah. they also had their own set of gods, arguably looking after them. I, yeah, again, I, different story. I would argue it's more that Kemri kept their gods happy and on their <laughs> side, where Tylos didn't, which I'm about to get into. So Tylos, in many ways, uh, likely due to the fact they were probably sending out raiding par raiding parties, they were probably getting more aggressive. They were, they were probably violating a lot of the tenets that Myrmidia had initially set out for them in order to grow more powerful. And they had become so obsessed with not furthering civilization, but demonstrating that they were the most powerful and that they should be 
seen as or treated as divine themselves that Mermidia leaves them. She stops supporting them because they lost the plot, so to speak. Hey, Laughing God is one of the reasons for the initial technological boom of the Skaven is because they reverse engineered the tech from Tylos. That is certainly something that you could easily surmise. Mm, that's, mm. One particular clan is responsible for the vast majority of the technological boom, so to speak. Um, and that is an entirely different stream. Yes. Uh, one day. One day. <laughs> one so, day. <laughs> uh, so uh, when Mermidia leaves, there is kind of a vacuum in Tylos. And one of the things is that when a god leaves, there there are probably, if you want to imagine in your head, people who noticed. There are probably priests or priestesses of this goddess of civilization who had horrible nightmares or panicked uh, understandings. But there may have been a lot of people, uh, like with many cults you see in the old world, who cared far more about their power um, or their personal prestige than they did anything else and may have not have noticed because they had become essentially corrupted in a sense. And into this vacuum came a stranger. The stranger. And this mysterious stranger wandered into Tylos and came before the king and said, tell you what, I see y'all have this awesome tower here. It looks great. It looks cool, but it looks unfinished. And that's a shame. I <clears throat> can finish your tower in a single night. I will, I will complete it, make it everything y'all ever wanted to be. All I ask in return, I don't ask for money. I don't ask for slaves. I don't ask for power or whatever. All I ask is I be able to give an offering to a God of my choice on the top of the tower. And the people of Tylos go, oh, he doesn't want any money. He doesn't want land or anything. Easy. No problem. Done deal. And they all go to sleep. And then when they wake up in the morning, the tower, sure enough, it's finished. But there's a strange, sinister bell sitting at the very tippy top of this tower. And it begins to ring. And it rings for 13 days and 13 nights. Clan <laughs> American military industrial complex. You're not wrong. <laughs> Are we the Skaven? <laughs> Is that been the American faction all along? But um, so that bell tolls for 13 days, 13 nights. And um, that is the legendary Doom of Kasvar story uh, where it starts to rain and it just keeps raining. It never stops. And then rats start to show up and the rats start to get bigger and bigger and all the grain goes bad. And all the food begins to spoil and rot. And their beautiful city becomes more of a horrible swamp. And people start infighting and trying to steal from each other and backstab each other. And treachery is rampant. The dwarfs close their doors and refuse to help them, saying that they have problems down in the deeps. And at the end of the story, the rats get so big, some of them start to walk on two legs. We all know where it's going. <laughs> and the people of Kasvar, in horrible desperation, break into the dwarf hold below, only to go down and find all the dwarfs have been devoured, and all that's left of them is bones and pieces of armor. <laughs> I <told you> <laughs> I've seen this before. Yeah. And, and uh, the people of Kasvar, the last scene is they find themselves surrounded by nothing but uh, beady red eyes in the dark and chittering rat men who swarm in on them, and that's the last that's ever seen of the people of Kasvar. 
okay, so um, that story is already a, a extant, existent in the lore by the time I'm coming up and looking at Myrmidia and what we can do. The Myrmidian attachment wasn't. Um, so what I did was I came in and I said, right, we've got an existing story. We've got a gap in the lore. We can start filling this up. So I said Myrmidia was the goddess um, that was behind the Tylos people. In the same way that you have the Umbergan people or the Udosi people or the Cherisons. Oh, uh, the Black Pyramid. Uh, I can't talk today. Bruce buildings can draw the winds of magic to it. Do I think that the Tower of Kazvar drew the minds to it? And if so, which ones? Uh, I would say it probably just also drew the winds of magic. It might have drawn particular winds as opposed to just pure dar. But granted, once it was, uh, shall we say, altered by its final architect, um, it probably draws uh just uh i think of, a yeah, lot i think of stuff i think there'd be a fair amount of algu in there as well given the very nature of the gods involved yeah um, which would make and, sense for scale and yeah totally it would um and would settle in with everything that was being done it was a giant trick as well so that would go working quite well plus it uh it reinforces the secret nature of the Skaven. So I would, if I was writing, almost certainly include that. There's other wins, obviously, but you'd say, oh, Gur should be involved or whatever, um, particularly given that you're going to be going anti-civilization, but they build a new civilization out of those roots. So, meh. Uh, anyway, yeah, but um, the there I was. Oh, go. go. Uh, the, the only thing I want to say, Jonathan, to that is that uh, a building as grand and had as much likely magic and uh, put into it and maybe even like full-on worship as what would later become the Temple of the Horned Rat, it yeah. would certainly draw something to it. Definitely. Okay, so there I was, um, looking at that tale, and Tylos became the tribe. Um, so, oh, you meant wins there. Yeah, thanks. Super okay, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. Then yes, yeah. it would absolutely draw magic. Lots of Olgu, too. With the civilization, treachery, and everything that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so, uh, where was I? Uh, big building, civilization, Tylos tribe. Yes. So, uh, it was the Tylos tribe. Um, the name of the city um, was, at least behind the scenes for us, um, definitely confirmed as Kazvar, Kavzar. Get it the wrong way around every time. Kavzar, yep. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Kavzar. Um, so, so that was the city. The people were Tylos. Um, and the people of Tylos were speaking the first uh, versions of what would become classical. Um, and at this point, there was a little discussion, and we went. So we've got the the, the pantheon as it builds here. So we've got Myrmidia's mom is Verena, the goddess of wisdom. Perfect. That works very well because um, civilization could be passed down through the daughter. The teachings can come from Verena. This is all working nicely. We've got more the god of death. That's good. That's dad, but possibly not the god of death at this point. There's a story to be told there mm. as well, but that's for another stream. We've got her sister, who is definitely extant at this point, Shalia, goddess of mercy. Um, and Myrmidia and Shalia at this point are both complete pacifists, having received the wisdom of their mother and father, who view a civilization and life in a particular light. And this is all passed on to the people of Tylos. And Myrmidia eventually, in the story that was behind the scenes not said, manifested. And she arrived, and she walked those streets, and she didn't like what she saw. She looked around and went, fuck this for a game of soldiers, and left. And left them with a prophecy, which was, I will return. And I will return when you are worthy of me. You are currently not worthy of me. And this upset quite a lot of folks. 
as Mermidia fucks off. But the basic tale, <laughs> as it's laid in, was Mermidia looked upon them and saw them to be no longer worthy of her beneficial blessings. So she withdraws. Okay, so I know this would be obnoxious, but I really want that meme now of like that that famous quote of like the woman saying, "If you don't, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best." But it's on the cult of Ravinia, and that's like the last thing she says, and she's like, "Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. I'm out of here." Um, and this causes a massive fracturing. Um, the people, the Tylos people, effectively become the Tilian people. They are the people that spread down throughout not the islands down one side and down through the coastline through the other. And they spread mm. outwards where Kazvar sits, Kavzar, Kazvar, whichever. Kavzar sits at the very top, um, continuing on with its almost self righteousness as they start reaching out for other alternatives. Um, eventually, that goes mightily wrong. But the uh, civilization has spread outwards and her people, so to speak, have also spread outwards. And her people, you could be argued, are all of Tilia and possibly into Astalia as well, although it had its own tribes over there as well. So there we go. Mermidia has come down possibly once, but she's definitely made her actual express preferences known and it's not what was happening in that place. She is a goddess of building, a goddess of helping her people. And go check out Athena, because the reason for that was because we were bringing in many of the other aspects of Athena with her protective ownership in many regards over Athens and the many things that she brought for Athens and for the people that eventually across the whole, all of the Hellenic peoples, what she brought for them. And that was being reflected to try and broaden out what Mermidia was. Mermidia was not just simply one tiny aspect of a far greater goddess just ported over to the Warhammer world. She was a far bigger goddess in general. However, she does indeed return. And that's the big one. Mm. That's the really big one. She returns when she feels that her people need her the most. Now, that was, in my original timeline, approximately 300 IC, but they swept it um, in more recent ones, and they dropped it to almost the time of Sigmar, which in many respects undermines Sigmar, and yeah, I'm not so happy uh, with I, that. They, yeah, I wish they could... I really wish they hadn't done that. Um, it also but, just makes it needlessly more confusing, too. It, uh, yeah, it, uh, the, the whole point was it was at the next coming of chaos after Sigmar, 300 years afterwards. Um, and everything's going awry again. The world is going wrong, and she returns to the mortal world, to her people, to spread her message that it's not all as bad as it appears to be. Except she's mortal. Oh, before we go in there, Estalia and Tilia are so bellicose with each other over Mamidian part over guilt and hate of rejecting her in the first place. Yeah, um, not far off that one, Mandatis, um, and we're going to get to exactly what's about to occur. So yeah. she is born. Mm. Now, if you go to Tilia and Estalia, they all have their own tales for how it was done. More modern versions have retold that tale. But as I originally put it, she was born to human parents. That was super important because she's mortal. She has to be mortal. If not, she breaks the... So she's the goddess of the Sims of SimCity. Yes. Um, yeah. so... <laughs> and, she, and she looked and went, this is awful, and left. <laughs> yeah. I've screwed up. I'm going to my old save file. <laughs> See you guys later. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it was quite important that she's born as a mortal. And when we had the discussions with Games Workshop at the time, it was essential she was mortal. Because if she wasn't mortal, if she was, for example, just born from a an egg as the goddess just arriving or something similar, that undermines the fact that she's 
arrived as a mortal and doesn't break the rules that exist in the Warhammer world for gods. Gods mm. cannot manifest in the Warhammer world until the world ends and everything has gone wrong. That's when the gods can walk the world. They can't do that just now. There's things in place to stop it happening. If the gods could walk the world, trust me, Zinch they would. would yeah. <laughs> Zinch would be down there doing the thing. And the reason the other gods don't is to stop Zinch from potentially doing that. There's a whole extra stream on just this alone. Uh, I thought a comment came in there, didn't. So, here we go. She arrives as a mortal. She's born into a peasant family, but her parents die. She's now an orphan. She's taken in by her aunt and uncle, and they suck. I mean, they suck balls. They <laughs> yeah, are the awful. worst. They are literally the worst. And once they've done with whatever abuse they've decided to do with her, they sell her to the local equivalent of the Duke. Um, and that Duke is bluntly a dick and does not treat her well at all. You can use whatever particular imaginations you wish for exactly what occurs. Yeah, Mermidia the Mortal got a speed run on trauma. Hard speed run on trauma. Yeah, but but hard speed run by immortal time, but for her it was just another mortal life. And by the age of 17, 16, 17 area she broke. And there's many different ways that she could go upon breaking. And she chose rage. Mm-hmm absolute rage and she grabbed a ceremonial spear that was held above the oh genuine question real quick uh thank you for the uh the bits how would slash could mermidia fit into age of sigmar hello youtube chat a thousand happy days come to you uh so the the thing i would say uh is that uh literally anything can happen in age of sigmar and there's a lot of hints about various fantasy gods having survived into age of sigmar in various different ways but considering like the amount of like cities uh, that are going on with like cities of Sigmar and the Dawnbringer Crusades and something like that, it would kind of be the perfect ripe territory for Mermidia to possibly reemerge. Um, but there are there are a lot of hints that a lot of people's favorite gods have survived into Age of Sigmar, and they're just in very particular places. Um, but like a Dawnbringer Crusade would literally be the perfect place for Mermidia to reappear. Of uh, if there was like a a group of uh, humans or whatever that set out from a city of Sigmar, but for whatever reason, they the way Sigmar works does not allow them to feel like they're going to succeed. And then Mermidia ends up coming to them, or who knows? Maybe she reincarnates as the leader of that particular crusade, um, and she 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 pulls her old trick again and uh, helps them establish a new city that is separate from the Sigmarite dogma and leaves behind the Sigmarite dogma to establish a different way of living within the mortal realms. Um, that would probably be how she would reestablish herself. And then if you really wanted to keep it close, uh, have the city split after she is assassinated <laughs> into two different cities that are totally not Tillian Estonia inspired. And whilst I said Twitch are lovely, in comes YouTube. Damn it, Twitch. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, love it. So anyway, um, she gets angry. She picks up oh, the spear. She gets she picks up the spear and she plunges it into the side of um, the Duke, killing him, starting off what will become a number of years of pure warfare, where she takes that rage and she channels it and she chills, properly chills, and is, strangely enough, being a goddess at heart, extraordinary. She is somewhat similar to Sigmar extraordinary she's somewhat similar to to henowin extraordinary she is someone special and she 
goes to war to bring peace. A classic example of a double-think that someone from, say, the Suicide Squad might appreciate. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will bring peace through war. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a genuinely awesome moment when reading that myth about that she, she finally... And there are some, like, kind of unsettling uh, implications about what it is that finally kind of gets her to reach the point where she kills the Duke. But she yep. murders him, uh, like... But it's it really is self-defense. And she kind of has this realization of like, you know what? There are forces in this world that you can't, you, you have to take up arms against or else there's just no way to deal with it. And then she looks out across to Leia, which at this time is in bad shape. Like yes. things are not good in okay. to Leia or right it, now. It's another rise of one of the ever chosen. We all know what happens. Winds of magic are rising high. The end times have come. It's all going wrong. Last time around, Sigmar resolved all this issue and you could argue that this time around, it's going to be Mermidia. Um, and Mermidia is the one who will stand as some form of champion of light or some equivalent. Um, she comes down and she is fully mortal, which is why even though she has uh, a whole host of indignities you could argue thrust upon her if you do want to go down that grim route. Um, she is as capable of dealing with that as any other mortal. And that is, she doesn't have power. And she realizes that her pa previous pacifist ways are, whilst admirable and a goal, are not the only way forward. And she effectively says to her sister, you're wrong. You need to do that. I now need to do this to ensure that you can do that. And there's obviously going to be some issues between them because of this. Because on mm. one side, we've got war. And on the other side, you've got peace. And in many respects, that's what they come to encapsulate. But Mamidia, it must be very clearly put forward, is not a goddess of war. Her myths, the things that she does over the course of the next just a scant few years, she will be dead by about the time she hits 20. Over the course of the next scant few years of the great battles that she wins over this incredibly short amount of time where she bands together two of the largest parts of the old world together under a single banner. Through the course of this, yes, it's all war, but it's not done for war. Mm. War, as she pitches it, is a science. It is something that you can win no matter the odds that are placed against you, no matter how large the chaos horde may be par exemple. No matter how desperate things may become, if you have the correct strategy, the correct approach, you can still pluck victory from the most unlikely of situations. And her greatest battles are almost exactly that, showing how one can use strategy to overcome almost anything. But that is because she has a greater goal. And the Tillians and the Estallians of later worship her as the goddess of that goal, not of the goddess of strategy. That's just a part of everything that she does. Hendrik asks, in an earlier stream, you explained the chaos gods contradict themselves because they do not have coherent consciousness. Con consciousness. Uh, does this also apply to other gods? Um, I'll say that that, I'll, I'll answer very quickly in that one. Zinch definitely doesn't have a coherent consciousness. The others have a different form of consciousness, and I wouldn't like to pin it down as not coherent. Yeah, so I would say the, the way that it's usually described, Hendrick, is that from an in-universe perspective, there are a lot of characters who believe that the gods are mad and that they don't understand the world and they can't. From an out-of-universe perspective, it's not so much that they don't have a coherent consciousness. It's more that they don't 
often understand everything that makes reality reality because they don't have to live by those rules. It's like us living in the 3D universe. If if I gave you an, a working, fully living, breathing 2D universe, there are times where you'd go, okay, well, I could do this. Why isn't it working in here? And you're trying to figure out what are the actual rules in this, in a sense, lesser universe or more constrained universe. And that's where they struggle is that the space they live in does not operate by the rules of the space the Warhammer world lives in. And that's what causes them a lot of problems because to them, concepts like space and time are not the same at all yeah. in the slightest. Aeth in the Aether, in the realm of the gods, in the realm of chaos, time doesn't truly exist in the way that we understand it. And that's super important um, because as we've noted earlier with Myrmidia, she was effectively the patron of the Tylos people in the same way that Ulrich was the patron of the Teutigans. Um, and she manifested directly and did not like what she saw. And that means she didn't un know what was going on when she was off in the realm of the gods. Whatever her consciousness may have been over there, it did not apply to the material realm. And when she came into the material realm, and time now affects her, everything, that the all the laws of the material realm that are in place, that were put in place, if you want to argue which god did it, let's say Azurin, as good as any. Um, good old bifurcated Azurin, who was known as the creator of the mortal realms by the elves. The laws that are in place now impact her and she sees it for what it actually is, not whatever her mind may have constructed, assuming she has one. And it's very different. And again, she's now down on the mortal plane, approximately in my version, at least at about 300, although it's been shifted around um, in some other publications. Oh, before we go off into that, Jonathan. In one novel, we see Aberash had corrupted a militant order of Myrmidia. Is there a larger relationship entity between Myrmidia and the Blood Dragons? Um, no more so than any other knightly order with any other knightly order. I mean, the, the Blood Dragons are effectively... Yeah, I mean, the, the Blood Dragons are the corruption of, like, those who like to apply rules to violence, where the Blood Dragons don't believe that's a good idea. So they're going to be messing with anybody like Myrmidia, the Lady of the Lake and her laws yep. of chivalry, etc. Um, so the, the long answer to that is almost all knightly orders have rules. Yeah, no key, thanks. So yeah, there's going to be enmity there. Um, yeah, the dragons are like, something that stops me from killing? Ridiculous. Wrong. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, so here's Myrmidia. She has come down. Um, she has broken free. She has led a rebellion against the local rulership. And she has won a ragtag band of peasants and rabble that she is going to bind together over the course of the next so many years to conquer both Estalia and Tilia. And this is where much of the issues of the future begin. Because both Tilia and Estalia claim that Myrmidia was born in the their realm, <laughs> country. Yeah. I mean, you can't call it a country. It's not when it's not a state. Realm. Let's they're, go for yeah, realm. Yeah, okay, so the, the realm of Tilia. Okay, the, they claim that she's Tilian, where the Estalians claim she was a Stallion. Both of them have got what they claim are religious texts that back their view. Um, hmm. And there begins the issues. What We can sum up what happens over the course of the next so many years in a few pithy circumstances. Number one, there are 12 great battles, 12 incredibly important battles, 12 battles, each of which she should have lost, ranging from the very small skirmish to the begin with, right up to a, the battle of all battles that wins her all of Tilia and Estalia as one great thing. Ooh, there's the laughing god. 
Uh, does this mean Remedia has more perspective on things than other gods because she can manifest as a mortal and much like a mortal grow? Uh, the argue to that, no. Um, sadly, because the uh, realm of the gods is eternal. She has as much and as little as everybody else. Um, she has... One of the great mistakes is to think that um, Mermidia today is any different to what she was right at the very beginning and has changed, um, as we will get on to. Um, hmm. the, the fact that she changes doesn't mean that she actually ever changed at all. It's just a mortal appreciation of how these things have been applied. Yeah, if anything, I wouldn't say so much that she has a... Mm, I, it's I would complicated. say it, yeah, it's it's complex. The, the the one thing I would probably say is that she might have left with a better understanding of humans in the grand scheme of things. But you could even argue that, like, because I would say that it's that understanding of humans that meant that she tried to help the humans in the first place. Yeah, time like, doesn't exist in the ether. Yeah, um, remember that according to the laws of the ether, she is post manifestation Mermidia and pre manifestation Mermidia simultaneously. Absolutely. Um, and the goddess that she becomes is not um, a change of the goddess. It's a change of worship. Um, because worship completely changes from Amidia after her second manifestation. Yeah, if anything, I would actually argue that her being mortal allowed her to change how mortals interact with her, not how Definitely. she interacted with them. Yeah, that's, uh, or indeed how her personality changed. Because of all the things that happened when she was mortal does not necessarily change her for all it absolutely does in the mortal realm. So yeah. she goes to war for so many years, 12 great battles, um, and during the course of this, she pulls together many, let's just use the word apostles, followers, whatever you prefer, um, and in total, there is, uh, how many rays of the sun uh, on their sun again? Is it 18? I guess, however many there is rays of the sun on the Mermidian sun. Oh, uh, um, I'm so. pretty sure it's 18. Oh, uh, off the top of my head, it's 18. Um, and uh, there's that many, and some of them are massively important to Mermidian cult lore. Um, one of the ones that's given inside, for example, the Choma Salvation is Fury, um, who was only known as the name of Fury. And she represented all of Mermidia's first Fury, um, but her Fury never dies. She is in a state of perpetual rage. And that state of perpetual rage is channeled into warfare and then moved away from the warfare so she doesn't fall to, for example, the blood god. But it was the, the ability to bring mortal rage against the rage of the gods. Um, and she eventually dies um, uh, facing off against Greenskins, where she, there's like an entire pile of them um, surrounding her. Um, that's the order of fury that comes later, an order that is all about um, channeling and controlling rage on the battlefield and making the best use of it. In many respects, sticking their fingers up at Ulrich, or if we're going to be doing it properly, up at Ulrich, and saying, fuck you, Ulrich, we do it better than you do, um, because we apply strategy as well as the fury and bloodlust of battle. And indeed, when we were writing the Tome of Salvation, we talked about the um, cult of fury, so that's one of the lesser orders of the cult of Remedia, I'd be making significant gains throughout Middenland, because it represented something that the nobles could accept. A far more controlled version of what Ulricanism presented. And it was something that they could then say, and plus we can have guns now because the Ulricans really don't like guns. But Mermidia does. Um, and that allowed for conflict. And one of the most important things you've got to remember whenever you're building any setting material, world building, is to build in conflict to ensure that there's stories that can be told. Because if everyone gets on with each other, Meh, what story are you going to tell? <laughs> boring! Um, so for three years, she wanders around Tilia and Estalia until eventually, well, I know the story that we wrote, but the story has certainly changed over time. 
Eventually, she's assassinated. Mm. And the reason... And, her I, 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 no less. and I can tell you exactly who assassinated her as well. Clanation. Yep. It was Clanation. That was the original intent. It was the Skaven. They were petrified because next on the list was Skaven Blight. And they're, <laughs> yeah, they're right and, smack in the middle of Mermidia's fire. And that is exactly what she intended to do. She was going to cleanse Skaven Blight. That was her next step. An existential threat. And we all know what the Council of Thirteen does whenever an existential threat comes. They kill it. Um, that's mm -hmm. what they do. They have done it. They've attempted it multiple times in the past with things like Nagash. They've attempted it multiple times with others around, and they generally succeed. In this case, they succeeded. They killed the goddess. They couldn't actually kill her, though, because she was pretty much a goddess. So what happens is she gets dumped into a boat. She sails off into the east, into the west, pardon me, west, and yeah. she disappears and is never seen again. Um, and uh, sailing into the west is seen as a way of disappearing into the realms of the gods. It becomes a phrase in Tilia. Um, and the goddess, on the point when she should have become the queen of all Estalia and Tilia, dies. And she's exceedingly young at this point. But she has bound together all of these people without any real awareness of um, what would happen if she wasn't there. And it collapses. Completely collapses. And from that point forwards, not only does Tilia stop being Tilia, as it may perhaps, perhaps move towards, it collapses into separate city-states, all of which are warring with each other. The Estallian kingdoms collapse into separate kingdoms, mm. all of which are warring with each other. It turns into a proper war hammer setting, but the great threat of the day had come to an end. Um, the Skaven are not stupid. There's one thing that people often think the Skaven are is foolish and stupid, and they do silly things. Okay, they take enormous risks, but they're not stupid. Oh, there comes no. uh, Hammond. Yeah, when uh, Odin asks Thor, are you Thor, god of hammers? He says, no. He then asks Remedia, are you the goddess of guns? And she says, hella yes. Hella yes. <laughs> oh. <sighs> oh, man. So they waited for whatever particular threat Mermidia was there to deal with to come to an end. Then they killed her. They basically just bided the time and bang, dead. However, this gets changed with certain myths at various points, which is obvious because yeah, I, knows about the yeah, I mean, my, my favorite version of it would be that Mermidia successfully kills an Everchosen um, and defeats them, unites all of Talaya and Nostalia, and the Skaven, now that the Everchosen that potentially could have been coming for them it, and would have, because a lot of people think, you know, Although Skaven um, in a lot of different versions are lopped together with chaos, like even if you view them as being a chaos race, they still fight chaos constantly. Like, whenever the there's a big chaos invasion, Hellpit is always on the chopping block and has to defend themselves. So if there was an ever chosen coming up the south, Skaven Blight would be a hell of a prize um, from their perspective. Um, so the, or, you know, whether it was just a big wah or both. Uh, because, I mean, Sigmar had to deal with the same thing, too. He had never chosen, and one of the greatest flaws the world had ever seen, and Nagash. Um, so whatever Mermidia dealt with, defeating all those threats, the Skaven go, okay, she has survived her usefulness, and she's coming for us next. And if there's one thing the Skaven are good at, it's when someone is a threat to them specifically, they will get their shit together and kill them. Damn straight. And um, at least in the version that we were building for second edition, that is exactly what happened. Um, Mermidia was killed, she sails off um, and the rumors return again that she will return in a, great, in a time of great need for her people um, and it allowed us to move the 
central focus away from the empire for the uh, inevitable arise of every single ever chosen, because it was always the empire um, and the elves that were under threat. It allowed us to move to a different part of the old world, it allowed Norse raiders to come down from the coast. It allowed us to imagine the effective man of war version of the chaos fleets coming down there, working a different angle, doing something else. And it was all behind the scenes, but it was something <clears> that was definitely not just considered, discussed multiple times. And we were like, yeah, that makes sense. And it also allows extra space for um, the ever chosen to move in there. And then the next one after that might take a route down through Cathay. The next one might come up from the south. There's lots of fun things we can do. This mm. rocks. We were super happy with that job done. Um, so there we go. Mermidia has uh, done her deed. She has come back. She's bound them all together, but and uh, she's saved the day, but unfortunately died. Um, and uh, we then have ourselves a long period of Mermidian expanse in terms of the cult as it changes completely inside both Tilia and Estalia and factionization begins to form between the two different versions of Mermidianism that um, rise, arise from this. Um, and we have the uh, fragmentation and then rebuilding of the Tilian city-states and the Estalian kingdoms until they form into effectively the modern-day version um, that we have today. Um, there is, oh, there's a, uh, Hendrick, uh, let's see, the Skaven ritual to remain hidden clearly bled out to Talia and Estalia. This is why Gates Workshop kept forgetting about them so often. Wow. I think that's a damn fine argument. That, that's how you know the Skaven figured out a good ritual. It's bleeding out <laughs> of a fictional universe into the real one. <laughs> Man, that's a good ritual. Um, so we have ourselves uh, 2,200 to 2,500, depending on which version of the lore you go with, worth of development there. And through the course of that time, we reach the modern day cult. Um, and I'm going to end this particular section with a couple of just overall loose statements concerning what the Myrmidian cult becomes. It becomes the largest cult in the old world. Mm -hmm. It massively dwarfs all the other cults combined. And this is not something I say without any reservation. The cult of Sigmar is small in comparison to the cult of Mermidia. It is <laughs> huge in the Empire, enormously huge in the Empire. But the cult of Mermidia is just as enormously huge in Tilia and Estalia. The other cults, cult of Mor, cult of Shalia, tend to have not more than a single, a single temple or high temple in any given city. Um, cults of Mor often have no more than a single priest in any large town who wanders around all of the villages where almost every single last town and village in Estalia and throughout Tilia have temples and shrines to Myrmidia. Think of them almost as uh, pervasive as not just the Catholic faith in the real world, but also all other Christian faiths as well. All other, effectively, Judeo-Christian faiths and Islam and all the rest. That is the cult of Myrmidia inside these two areas. All of it bound together. And yes, there's a lot of factionalism. And in the same way that Protestants don't necessarily agree with Catholics, in the same way Myrmidians don't necessarily agree with Myrmidians. There's an awful lot of conflict throughout that cult. That doesn't change the fact that it is massive and it is, unlike real world equivalents, one cult with a single leader at the top. And that's quite important in terms of how much control that individual person has. The head of the cult, by the time we hit modern days, is the most powerful figure in the old world and is always forgotten by Games Workshop. Always, always, 
always. Yeah, which the modern one is actually a really interesting character who we'll get to in a minute. But so uh, Romania is the boogeyman of the Skaven. Yes, yes, Dom Street. Yeah, well, so we'll we'll come back to that in a second. There's another super chat here that I want to answer real quick. But uh, uh, um, how does the color yeah. view the colors of magic? There are two. Yeah, I would say the same way she views gunpowder or yeah. um, any other thing that can be used effectively in strategy and war. Um, on magic, old wizard, magic. Wizards yeah, are not outlawed at all in uh, Talia and Astalia. Like, there are a yep. lot of wizards there um, that practice some bizarre forms of magic as well. Um, mm -hmm. Like, they, they won't necessarily practice the Eight Winds because they're not restricted by the Elven teachings. Yep. Um, which is why you'll often find, hilariously enough, you'll often find Talians and Astalians are blamed, quote-unquote, for when some really weird forms of magic get uh, appear from time time to time, yeah. Um, and but this also is why they tend to have problems with uh, demonologists and necromancers as well because they have an easier time uh, kind of hiding amongst a bit of a wild wild west type situation. Um, though a lot of the wizards end up being contracted by like uh, merchant princes and other type folks, and there are there are forces that oppose them like. For Mermidians, they're cool with it as long as they are furthering uh, civilization and like a honorable form of they're living. Not bad guys. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but then there's like the Sulkanites, and they don't like anybody, especially not wizards. Um, Sulkanites are fucking scary, and they they're down there in the south as well. Yeah, there's a good but, team uh, in that name as well. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think is really interesting, worth observing, uh, to hit on Jonathan's. Uh, point is the great horned rats relationship with mermidia because the two of them are intrinsically tied together totally um, are. like uh it, it's one of those things that like andy said games workshop kind of unfortunately forgot about a lot so we don't get as much of an examination you know a lot of the time when we hear about the great horned rat it's based on his relationship with sotek which is mm -hmm. important but it's a very different kind of relationship um the great horned rat it's, it, it's the relationship in the south over there rather than the relationship in the old world yeah um, yeah. and Mer the great horned rat that goes up against Mermidia, he is functionally a response to Mermidia an almost insidious parasite that showed up because she In wasn't the there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. like, cause the, ultimately he is the God of ruination. That is his big domain. And he is the inheritor of things that are despoiled. And the thing that he inherits is civilization collapsing. The Great Horned Rat is literally the devil to Mermidia. Yep. Um, it, like that's why, like as far as I'm concerned, it has to be a Skaven that kills her mortal form because yep. he is her devil. Like he is the ultimate antagonist to the Mermidian goddess. Is this god that is a rat that gnaws at the roots of that which she built, and then tries to bring it all collapsing down. So that he can flood over it and devour what's left. Um, the, the and I, I just to, to absolutely reinforce this because I completely agree. The fragmentation of the city states and the kingdoms you can probably lay that entirely at the hands of the Skaven. Oh, they yeah. are working like a fucking badass breaking apart all of these human civilizations that are close to and directly potentially endangering their capital um so yes 100 they are effectively the devil they're they are the rats that know at civilization and do not get along with mermidia and it's a whole aspect that i 
fervently wanted to write about, but sadly was not in a position to do so because I'd moved on from that job at that point. <laughs> yeah, Aww. and 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 the thing that's really interesting um, is as well is there's almost kind of um, a thing in the Great Horn Rat is Morbidius Bizarro, <laughs> Bizarro World, uh, Bizarro Superman versus Superman. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, he even speaks funny <laughs> compared to her. Uh, but um, cool. Uh, oh yeah, uh, this is actually a real. It hasn't appeared yet. Ah, uh, there it is. Vermintide two bringing out Mermidian ruined weapon skins for all the characters just got much more interesting. Yeah, so like if you really want to have fun with that, yes, put on your Mermidian weapon skins. Uh, they are very appropriate for bashing rats with. Oh yeah. But, well, what's kind of interesting and almost kind of um, there's, I don't think this was the intent when they did it, but there's almost a poetic justice. To the fact that in a lot of ways the horned rat himself kind of ended up splitting thanks to clan pestilence into a a mm. plague god and a god of ruination that are two genuinely separate cults within Skavendom that fight constantly. Um, whether you're looking at like the Gracer Order versus the uh the plague priests, and Sotek has much more to do with the plague aspect of the great horned rat as opposed to the original version of the Great Horned Rat. But Sotek's also just very anti-chaos in general. Um, Sotek is a response to chaos itself, not necessarily just the Great Horned Rat. Though, of course, that was his uh, nominal enemy when he showed up. Um, but when it comes to, like, the OG Great Horned Rat, it's Mermidia. That is his rival. Therefore. Um, And uh, generally speaking from the point when she manifests to the end times, throughout the course of that, if you're looking for a story to build for regarding the cult of Remedia, it is its complete fragmentation and destruction by Skaven. Um, they are penning alternate versions of what reality is. They are saying one thing, they're saying another. They're spreading dark whispers throughout the cult. That is their job, because they do not want the potential arrival of that goddess again ever being understood for what it is if they could somehow eradicate that she had ever been mortal that she had ever come they would figure out a way to do that and they've almost certainly tried multiple times they've failed now in various versions of the warhammer world from this point forward you'll get different tales and that's not just because there's different tales spread by skaven that's largely the uh that's largely the way to rationalize and understand why there's different tales it's because mm. we've had different writers and those different writers have done different things they've taken holy books for example that i created for the second edition and they've added extra bits to them the bologna mermidia the war goddess mermidia was meant to be basically just the tales of her life the um what was the other books i can barely remember them off the top of my head bologna mermidia the uh book of war which was supposed to be um the arts of war which was how to uh, safely conduct and correctly conduct warfare. Uh, Mermidia, yeah, there was, uh, la, la, uh, la Aguila Ultima. Um, the, that, that's, that, that's the, the that's not one of the books. That's the leader of the cult. Oh, that's oh, right. That's I'm, a character. I was I was looking yeah. at the wrong little part of this page. Yes, but uh, there are. Oh my gosh, I'm on the wrong. There's page. Three, three holy books that um I built for the original one. Um, the Bologna Mermidia and two others. I've got the book here. I could just pull it out. I'm on. See, oh see who gets gosh. it first, eh? Well, oh, have a little bit the wrong. Well, you wrote it, so you're gonna. <laughs> yeah, here we go. So we have the Bellamidia, the Bellum Strategia. That was it, and the Book of War. Um, that, yeah, the, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the no. book. Uh, the uh, one of them gives you the twelve great battles that Mermidia did, and a complete breakdown of them. One of them was supposed to give you the complete breakdown for all the rules of war. This is basically the codified rules of war that you're meant to take 
when you go to war with each other. And Myrmidians do this, or at least they were supposed to. So that means that you um, do not persecute casualties. You take them in honorably. The whole thing is about honor because um, Myrmidia, when she was mortal, had had the exact opposite be the first instance that she was faced with. And she then moved forward saying there is a right way to do this. And this is the right way. War does not need to be uncivilized. It doesn't need to be a giant... Uh, oop, Doom Rider! Reading end times for Stalin Tilia. Would you say them uniting would be a good reason for the scheme to finally snuff them out? Yes. Yeah, if, if I were... If I were writing an end time segment for Stalin Talia, it would definitely involve the Skaven. Um, if anything, I would probably have the Skaven win, but it would come at like a horrible cost for the Skaven. Yeah, yeah, like, you'd be looking to make some really cool characters be involved with a mighty battle. The Skaven win that one, but they lose the one with the Lizardmen. Um, yeah. Loosely speaking, you, you have, I would say they end up so losing scared. to the Sotek uh, eventual strike because Mermidia had some critical strike that Sotek's able to exploit functionally yeah so mermidia has the arts and rules of war now the basic concept to this um as many of the basic concepts in warhammer came from malcolm Moorcock with um one of his champions ericacy ericacy who's uh, an eternal champion and stated rules that all wars had to be conducted by and that got uplifted and dropped down like many things in the warhammer world was uplifted <laughs> and dropped from his work um and uh, I can't express how much of a difference that makes for how Myrmidians conduct their warfare. They do it right. Um, they do it honorably. They don't persecute prisoners. Be no do note, though, that certain things always get killed. Chaos worshippers, for example. If you're a worshipper of the Dark Gods, you die. But you are killed humanely. Mm. You are killed properly. You're not tortured. They don't try to take information from you or anything similar. They do it right. And Mermidia's entire books are all about how she managed to do it right, to do it honorably, and still win. And that's the big one. She won. 100% won. And everything that she does is largely mundane. It, what, she didn't win because she was using magic. She didn't win because she was doing uh, great big miracles and pulling down comets from the sky or because she was the most ridiculous warrior that ever won. No, she was just she won. Luck. She outsmarted everybody else and made the very best use of the tools that she had available. Yes, she was surrounded by extraordinary heroes, all of which had their own extraordinary capabilities, but they were just individual mortals on the battlefield. Yeah, I, I think she was also facing extraordinary creatures and i think the also big the thing, thing for me for mermidia to explain why she's so immensely popular is that as far as all the gods go i'm talking about the entire pantheon of human gods she is the ultimate god when it comes to uplifting men um mm. humans to the best they can be without having to literally augment them it's it's not about blessing them so that they become super strong berserkers like Ulrich or debatably Sigmar. No, it's about okay, this is how you properly leverage a pike formation so that even how you though... train, how you eat. Yeah. This is the proper food. This is how you exercise. The, the whole thing is laid out in an almost modern view of warfare. How to make your troops work well in almost the exact opposite way of how the Empire handles it. Yeah, and and, and that's the thing that I think is that and another reason that she's so popular with common folk is it's not just about war. It's all aspects of life, mm -hmm. how to be the best human you can be. And it's not just uh, assuming that it's not, you know, a, one of the subsections of the cult that maybe has taken some aspects a little extreme. It's one, it's very effective 
Um, and it, it works like it genuinely works. There's a reason people adore her so much, uh, mm. and worship and love her so much is that ultimately she brings out the best in people and pushes them to be their best selves and to treat each other with honor and a mm. civilized respect, which is kind of unusual <laughs> in a yeah. lot of aspects in the warmer world. 100% and she's also got a completely different setup to the Empire with the Empire ultimately everything flows down from Sigmar which means it comes down through the nobility and the nobility have got certain responsibilities and they don't necessarily do them very well and that's what it was where, where she came into and she instead said no anyone who is right can take a position of authority the right people for the right job which means in many of the princedoms they've got their old noble lines but they're also often advised by people with no noble blood in them at all many of their greatest generals were common born the old fables of Okitar the general um, that she apparently fell in love with during her scant few years as a mortal um uh, again he she fell in love with him because he was an extraordinary man an extraordinary general so mm. to speak um and that also caused massive issues with some of the people around her but again these are fables not necessarily true there might have been no autocar um that he may never have existed um and that's part of the the scaven issue with the whole problem most of her myths have been wrapped up in this cushion of lies in an attempt to try and break down her cult so that it's not a threat to the Skaven. Because let's be honest, if all of Tilly and Astalia got together and decided to wipe out Skaven Blight, they'd win. Now, Skaven Blight's impregnable, but they'd win. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Skaven are aware of that. Like, you know, a lot of people wonder, why is Skaven Blight there? Why haven't they just devoured and taken over Astalia and Talia? And, you know, a lot of that is because they're constantly backstabbing one another. But that's because there's a very genuine threat in Astalia and Talia. There is, but it's one that I think they've largely managed to control. Jonathan Scott says, what is Myrmidia's relationship with Sigbar as gods? I mean, uh, I mean... Listen, as much as I would kill, kill for a gifted writer to basically do like an office space type situation, <laughs> but with all the various gods of the Warhammer world and how they deal with each other in the lunchroom... Um, we don't get a lot of details about, like, we don't even know if gods do really interact with each other yeah. or if they the just kind of hang out way, in their own spaces. The only way you could answer that was if the gods themselves came down and manifested in the mortal realms, but they don't. And with the end times as we currently have it, they didn't. Yeah, which uh, is which stupid is because they should have. stupid, they really should have. Um, Hammond comes in, wait, is Okitar based in Okitan cultural language? No, it's not. Okitar, um was added by Kim Newman, the author, back in his uh, Genevieve books. It's just uh, a castaway play name, Otakar Mermidia. I can't remember the exact name. It was Mermidia and Otakar. can't remember. And there's a slight line saying he was a general that fell in love with a goddess. Um, and that was turned into, oh, the general who fell in love with the goddess must have done it when he came up by other writers. Um, I personally didn't have that. I had Autocar falling in love with Myrmidia at a completely different time from my own version. It was um, about 500 years ago, and that's why it was still in the common memory. But eh, it doesn't really matter exactly how it turns up. But yes, it was brought in by uh, Kim Newman in the Genevieve uh, books. Go check those out because they are pretty damn good. Um, all right, so we have gone through basically who Mermidia is and how she came to where she is and the fact that she's got the largest cult. I will mention one other thing before we go into the cult itself, unless uh, Sotek has anything else he wants to say first, and that's that not only does she have the largest cult, um, she also has the largest knightly order by a massive measure. 
Um, this is hinted at in various places, but I will very quickly sum up why. The Knight of the Righteous Spear, named after the spear that she thrusts into the side of the good old Duke Thud, like so, <laughs> is um, the largest knightly order because every single temple of Myrmidia that is held by the Order of the Eagle, the largest order in the cult, um, has a Knights of the Righteous Spear chapter house attached to it. All of them. But they don't all carry the name Knight of the Righteous Spear because they work around local legends that may or may not exist. But they're all under the command of the Righteous Spears. Consider them as different regiments in an army. They're all part of the same army and each regiment might have its own name. Like, you know, oh, there comes the Blazing Saddles, that well-known <laughs> regiment. The 34th Regiment Boys of Cavalry. Saddles. <laughs> uh... <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, oh, but they are they are all Knights of the Righteous Spear, meaning that the head of the Knight of the Righteous Spear, an impossibly powerful man, almost, in the Empire, it's currently a man, um, in the Old World, pardon me, is responsible <laughs> for Knights across the Old World. Um, and they are all... Well, there are more of those than anything else. Think of any other knightly order you know, and it suddenly feels small by comparison. Take a look hmm. at all of Tilia, all of Astalia. They're in the Empire. They're in Kislev. They're up in Norska, for goodness sake. They're down in Araby. They are everywhere. Compare that to, say, some of the largest ones we know. Knights of the White Wolf, 13 great companies of those spread across the Empire and into Kislev with membership. Uh, some of them spread into Norska and elsewhere. But that's just 13 companies. That's it. Each company will have its members spread across temples of Ulrich, but they're mostly in the north of the Empire. And that's it. It's a large chunk, but it's not that huge. The Reichsguard, they're tiny. It's like a single regiment. That's it. Everyone hmm. thinks of the Reichsguard and they think, oh, they're a really important order. Now, they really are not. They're a glorified bodyguard regiment. That is, that yeah, is what pretty they much. are. <laughs> yeah, um, the Knights Panther, now they are huge. Uh, mm. Far huger than most people realize. They have chapter houses across the empire, down into Araby, but they're still dwarfed by the Myrmidian um, order. So do be aware, if you are thinking of who's the most powerful folks in the old world, there's going to be an awful lot of Myrmidians in that list. In fact, you could argue that maybe the top five are all Myrmidians. More powerful than the King of Britonia, more powerful than the Emperor, by far, more powerful than the Grand Theogenist. And then where else do we go? Myrmidia, Myrmidia, Myrmidia. Yeah. Um, so I think the next place we should go is the cult, because then from there we can kind of talk about some like major events that happen around the cult as far as like enemies. Cool. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and go into the actual structure of the Cult of Myrmidia and kind of like the famous figures and where they're at. Sure, um, I'll, I'll pick up some bits. You can pick up top bits. We'll see where it goes. Um, all right, so the Cult of Myrmidia is uh, a massive cult. It is like the Cult of Sigmar in that regard. It's not constructed in anything like the Cult of Sigmar. So don't think of it as uh, this big ecclesiarchal order, which has got lots of Catholic leanings. It doesn't really. It's far more militarized. Yeah, no, no. It's far, far more militarized than, say, for example, the Cult of Sigmar is. Um, it, the reason I say it's similar is because there are literally hundreds of orders. There's not just one or two, four or five, six or seven. There are hundreds of them spread across disparate little monasteries, disparate little abbeys, little temples and shrines, all of which are protected by some orders which are a thousand years old. They may have been founded by one of Myrmidia's closest followers. The concept of the stories of Myrmidia being gathered by her followers and not her 
is a real thing, which means that there's lots of conflicting stories that come from different followers that she had when she was mortal. And indeed, when you go over into Astalia and the further you get away from some of the sources, they start saying she never manifested at all. It was actually a mortal that did it. It wasn't her. She was just guiding people. <laughs> Um, and each of these orders have got their own beliefs and they've got their own holy texts. They've got what they consider to be the truth. And it is that all of these texts, many of which, as we've already Mermidians discussed, probably really been, like their holy texts. Oh, they really love um, holy books. <laughs> and, and many of them are lost and they get refound at a later date. They're lost in old casks or urns or jars, much like real world texts would, because yep. that's what happens. And when they get rediscovered, new orders are founded. Some of the most famous orders that come later are relatively new in the greater scheme of things because they found a far more ancient text. So we've got a cult that is massive, but there is one order that dominates hugely, and that's the Order of the Eagle. Um, uh, these are the talking priests. These are the ones that stand up and do the preaching, that do all of the teaching of Myrmidia. And Myrmidian teaching isn't the same as your typical priest standing on a pulpit shouting type um, uh, teaching. <laughs> You're um, all bad and you should feel bad. That's the um, right they, way. They, they often have multiple priests leading sermons and they mm. um off and they frequently involve the people who are there to listen um this is uh detailed in some uh, i think in the leorican part um with the cult the monastery of the black maiden um but broadly speaking they are far more uh engaged with the people the people have an opinion the people matter the people are not something that are shouted at and told what to do. The people are people that are, they're engaged with and brought on side. They are the cult of Myrmidia. The priests are there to guide their thoughts and take them down panels and often go very Socratic in terms of how it's done. And by that, I mean, they ask questions mm. and they get the crowds to give them the answers and then guide them towards the correct answers as to how life would be Myrmidian, for example. Yeah, there's a, there's a very strong connection between how Myrmidian priests and the various uh, authority figures within the cult act like Verenins do, which, you know, she's descended, she's Verena's daughter, so you would expect it that much, of mm. that it is very much a, it's a dialogue. It's, it's a strategy of the mind, of exercising your mind, of keeping it sharp and asking questions, trying to explore ideas as opposed to what you might see in the north where there are some uh cults that might have the idea that no free thinking is bad for you it can lead you down wrong things you need to do what i tell you to do that is very heavily discouraged uh mm -hmm. within the Myrmidian cults and it causes inevitably massive conflicts with uh cults like sigmar's cult that it, uh, the cult of sigmar is an expanding uh doctrine that it very much has that almost missionary view that you must spread and teach and defend spread teach defend because the chaos gods have to be stopped it's our job to do this and the best way to do this is sure every fucker knows um and the myrmidians who are far more egalitarian far more willing to work with others willing to work with the sigmites and tell them that they're wrong sigmites don't like that either um there's a lot of conflict built into the fabric of who they are there um yeah, so we've got ourselves the Order of the Eagle. Now, the Order of the Eagle are, loosely speaking, organized like a gigantic army um, with a general right at the very top. And it leads down through a whole host of regiments. Each one of the various parts of the old world are different regiments. And the priests within them are the, not the commanders, the troops. 
They are down in the, the thick of it. They don't think of themselves as the leaders of war. That's very much a Sigmarite way of viewing it. I will lead you forward. I will do it because I know more than you and I'm better than you. Ignorance is bliss for you people, except where the ignorance I say shouldn't be. But you do need to know about uh, Let's just not think too much about it. Um, where the Myrmidians see themselves as part of the people. They need to lead the people, get them in. All of the people are taught to not just defend themselves and not just to fight in the same way that Sigmarites say, they are taught to live because their goddess is not a goddess of war. The strategy and warfare aspect of it is merely a means to an end and that end is the greater civilization of, in this case, Tilia, Estalia, and elsewhere. They support the civilization of the Empire. They support mm -hmm. Sigmar. They support everything that brings what will be solid foundations to hopefully protect against the many evils of the world. So they are not teaching people how to just, for example, do war. They have entire orders that do do that, entire mm -hmm. orders that are dedicated to just teaching the strategic applications of warfare. But they also have orders that are dedicated to farming because that's a part of building basic civilization. Artisanship, okay, allowing the building of things. They have orders dedicated to almost everything down in the south of the old world, where that is not the case as you move north, where she is seen almost entirely as a goddess of warfare and strategy, because that was the routine that the goddess has taken. And that was also, in terms of the empire, the primary thing that uh, the those <laughs> who are coming back brought with them. Yeah, that, yeah well, yes. And, and that's also something they understand very well. They're like, okay, all right, hey, Mar Meridia. Yeah, makes sense, totally. To achieve peace, prepare for war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a good bit of that. Um, so uh, that's the biggest order, and I can't express how big this order is because it's the primary spine of the cult. And then from this spine comes all the other orders, all of which are underneath that order's head. All of them. The next biggest order is, perhaps surprisingly, the Templar order. Um, normally, Templar orders are much smaller than priests and monks and all the rest, but it's the Knights of the Righteous Spear and all the various other names that it goes by. And it is actually huge. If it was ever to gather in one place, it would defeat pretty much any army in the Empire. Because, uh, not in the Empire, pardon me, in arguably the world. Because it is so <laughs> big. But it is fragmented, and there, oh, up there, what is Addy's favourite order in the cult? That's hard. <laughs> Pick That's your favourite child, hard. Andy. <laughs> I don't know! Um, blessed insight, perhaps, because it's quite different to what you'd expect from the cult, and I quite like that one. Um, yeah, that's that's quite hard. If it was ever to gather, it would be nigh on unstoppable, but it doesn't because each one is tasked with specific jobs, each one of the temple chapters of it, and that is generally to protect the local temple and to protect the people in that area. So that particular remit is very rarely overruled by any above because the local priest can pretty much say no. I need them here for reasons um, because the two orders are intrinsically linked all the way up to the very mm -hmm. top. Meaning that for all at the very top of the Knights of the Righteous Spear, there is a figure who arguably commands them all. Each individual local one is actually commanded by the local mm -hmm. high priest because they're the ones that are in control there. So there's an awful lot of push and shove as to who controls what and who is where. Um, that's the next biggest order. Then we just collapse down into many other orders. Yeah, thousands. And there's so many. We detailed a couple inside um, the... Uh, I'm just going to bring this one up just so I say, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it's almost like I said it to myself. 
seriously. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are many other orders, uh, almost all of which are attached to saints, blessed figures, individuals who have done something extraordinary in Myrmidia's service. Um, someone who has written important texts, someone who actually saw Myrmidia do something. And Myrmidia did a lot. For all, she was only alive for a few years. In that time, she pretty much toured almost in a continent's worth, the entire south of the continent. And there are stories across the borderlands all the way to the very edge of Estalia of Myrmidia being there. And mm. each story comes often with a holy text, the person who wrote down what Myrmidia did in that place, and that often forms a local order around it. Um, the most famous ones... <laughs> I love you too, Andy. Hey! <laughs> I love you as well, Andrew. Um, so, the... Uh, they come with their own. So if you're out there thinking, oh, I could just make up these. Yes, that's yeah. half the fun. The same goes for the cult of Sigmar. Sigmar's got hundreds of orders out there. Literally hundreds spread across all its towns and cities. And that's part of the fun. Um, so yes, you could go wild. Some of them are indeed detailed. Is Myrmidia um, a human exclusive supremacist deity? Supremacist is an interesting word. No. Yeah, you have to remember that the... There's a probably a very strong reason the original city of Tylos had dwarfs like almost integrated into it. Um, like that dwarf hole doesn't even have a separate name in any of yep. the myths. It's just Tylos also had dwarfs in it, but they were in the under part of the city instead of above ground. Absolutely. Um, and I fully um I fully think that is the case. It's, she's not a supremacist, humans are better deity. She is uh she is at heart a deity of civilization. And yeah. a deity of order. And also, the people of Kylos, that was an elven ruin. So, yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, she's um, in many respects, uh, she is. Uh, I mean, so just say a goddess of civilization is not enough, really. She, she's just uh, a goddess of order. And, and you could argue that she almost replaces some of the concepts of what the Lords of Law were originally set up with the whole Michael Moorcock uplift drop. Um, set down and that works quite well because you could almost <clears throat> look at many of the gods the old classical gods of the south um, as being gods that are um, all about order and education um, and a denial of the worst that lies out there except maybe Cain that, that being said I don't believe there's any evidence of non-humans worshipping her but it wouldn't shock yeah. me if there were a few out there yeah um, and Mermidia Mer almost certainly is um, known by other names elsewhere um, if you're looking at the classic example of, well, if all the gods are related, then who's who and where do they blend and Manam, Mathland, whatever, then definitely that is the case. But that's a different one. We know that Myrmidia was worshipped in the Empire long before Myrmidia arrived. Um, so that's Excellent. Also Thank you very much for the five gift sets, by the way. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Super. Thank you. You rock. Oh, and there's one there from... Thanks, guys, for this episode. Not a problem. This is a lot of inside. How do you think all of this could be implemented in? Well, uh, I'm going to I'm going to kind of cut that off of the kneecaps and say that I'm working on a video for that. But that would it would have to be a Talea slash Estalia expansion into the game. Um, there's a lot of people, myself included, that are really hoping that we'll get the Dogs of War as a playable faction. Um, not not that like ideally you wouldn't really call them the dogs of war but that's the name of their army book and that's how people know them so if they were a playable race they'd probably be called the dogs of war even though it wouldn't really because dogs of war yeah. is supposed to refer to mercenaries but yeah. because the army book also was essentially the talea army book it kind of conflates into itself um and talea also has a very strong mercenary culture to it, it so does. it 
if there was a playable Talea faction, which I do think we'll get eventually, they would probably be called the Dogs of War, and Mermidia would be a fucking huge part. I would say fucking so too. Huge well. part. Hey, Mandatis, thank you so much. Good lord, Mandatis, you uh, are very generous to us. On yeah, a you are. Basis. You are. I, I love you. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what a question. Where I'm at in Lohammer, one of the greatest generals of the Empire who applies Mermidian teachings is potentially revealed to belong to a chaos cult. How does a Mermidian fall to chaos by making compromises? Oh, there are all manner of ways a Mermidian could fall to chaos. Yeah. Chaos is insidious. Yeah. It's yeah. super insidious. Um, and and chaos is not just one thing because just when you've reached the point of going, I definitely couldn't fall, Zinch has got a thousand ways to get into anybody's head. Yeah. Um, yeah, misses so, and everything, or just think like if you had a Mermidian that's obsessed with the perfection of warfare, Slanesh is going to be right in on that. Of oh, yeah, that obsessionism, the, the, the artistry of war, um, and listening to the howls of pain rising out across the plain. Yeah, oh, you know, oh, it's like, a beautiful Slanesh win, yeah, winning a battle effortlessly without like. Uh, a single mistake being made very slashy oh. or the complexity of the strategies you're pulling off and the mental gymnastics of debating people is very zinchian or losing yourself to that warfare losing yourself to the violence and the rage very cornate actually on that i would say that of all the gods um that corn is the most obvious that you would expect because of warfare and bloodshed but i would say it's almost almost the hardest to actually fall um from a Mamidian side because they have got so much concern about that they have entire orders dedicated to controlling understanding and using anger and rage and ensuring that it doesn't then lead to falling um it's an important component of what it of warfare and ensuring that they understand warfare so i'd say that contrary to what many would expect that it would probably be corn that is the hardest to actually insidiously work his way in. And we often think of corn as a somewhat blunt hammer in terms of all the gods. A blunt axe might be better. Um, and <laughs> in that, he doesn't seem to have much subtlety. But as many of the corn cults have shown, often exceedingly subtle because there's many ways in which the blood can flow. Um, there's a really nice medical cult of corn, for example, that's all about those careful incisions of blood that lead to making it flow in the most terrible ways. But yes, anyway, um, I'd say corn is probably least likely, but <laughs> gently speaking, I have a greater story that's being told there, which will come out over time. So watch that cart. Also, if ride. you're a patron, there's a blog post that relates to this particular question. That oh, have I already written up. about it? Oh, that's good to hear. There's a blog post if you're a patron for Lawhammer. Oh, what a plug. I, I, I won't reveal <laughs> what it says. I'll just say that it's there. <laughs> what a plug. Um, hey, Charcoal Briquette. What would a warrior priestess adventuring around Uber's right circa 2012 life look like? Sectioneers, exceptions, converting locals, cheers. So converting locals is not the job. It's spreading a civilization is the job. If it's priestess, um, the warrior aspect is, well, it depends on the, it depends on your order. There's so many different, Uber's right, sectionary, yeah, that's, that's going to be a, th <laughs> see, there are so many answers to this question that it's really hard to pin down on one. So mm. the, there is definitely sect sectarian issues that they deal with. It, so if you really want a detailed answer, you kind of have to like narrow it down to what order you're a part of. 
yeah, the order you're part of and what the character and how the character in general got to where they are, then you can nail it down much more easily. Um, I would suggest if you want a longer hour, uh, drop into the uh, Lawhammer Discord, and I'm quite happy to pick that up on long on chats if you drop any extra details in there. Um, thank you. I, that, thank that's, you, yeah, thank you. Super appreciated. Um, right. Uh, you fancy you... Right, doing any lesser orders? Uh, uh, what about the one you mentioned earlier? The um... Order of Blessed Insight. Okay, yeah, so. Thank you. Right, so yeah, I'm quite happy. I can talk about Mermidia all day. Look at me go. Yeah, don't worry, don't worry. We're, I've got an interruption <laughs> coming up for you, but go ahead. Excellent. Okay, so the Order of Blessed Insight. Mermidia is not a goddess of just strategy and warfare, as we've discussed already. There's a few things that you need to understand if you want to properly accept Mermidia in her entirety. And that's that she is the daughter of Mor and Verena. And this is pretty much established. Of course, there's going to be some individual myths that claim other stories. Skaven. Um, I'm not saying that they're spreading other things, but whatever. Um, and there's going to be some myths that claim that uh, it's a completely different god, but perhaps in a similar guise, whatever. It doesn't really matter. One of the aspects of Mor is that he's a seer. He is capable of seeing the future. Um, he is the lord of dreams, the lord of insight, the lord of what lies beyond. And the Order of Blessed Insight is directly tied to um, the Morian aspects of Mermidia and being able to see the future for the cult. Now, the cult is strongly influenced by this order, particularly in Estalia and Tilia, but not in the Empire. In the Empire, if you want to become a high priestess, that's going to be entirely down to the whim of whoever's above you in your cult in the Order of the Eagle. Um, but if you're in uh, Mermidia, uh, Mermidia, pardon me, Estalia or Tilia, all top tier promotions are organized by the Order of Blessed Insight. The Order of Blessed Insight have a host of priestesses only who wander around in a classic mother, maiden and crone uh, triumvirate, moving mm. from place to place to place. Um, and as you move through the order, you are moved up into either the mother position, and you can't become a mother till you become a mother yourself, up to the crone position as you reach old age. Um, and the new inductees to the order as are as important as the older ones, because they are all paired together and have equal voice. And they are the incense-wielding, weirdo priestesses that see the future and do a whole host of scrying as to what's to come. And the arrival of those is always seen as somewhat of a, a warning that something's going to happen. So if, for example, you've been kicking around your temple for a wee while and suddenly three of those arrive, you know something's coming because they've come for a reason. They advise the local high priestesses. They tell them what's going to come. They are prepare for an attack, a war, a political change, whatever it might be, and then they move on. But like all humans, they're political. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes them fun. Yes. Because if they were just <laughs> blessed, then that would be no fun at all. No, no, no. They're political like everyone else. Um, hey, Hammond. Goes to the Tulane show, Maury. I foresee you are not the father. <laughs> Do you oh, know well, what Mori is? I don't. What's that? So it's a. It was a really stupid show on American television. It's it's a very dramatic show called Mori, and he would always bring on these bizarre people who would have lots of problems, and he'd he'd have he'd have them take a paternity test, and he'd say, "You are not the father." And I got a whole bunch of other stupid. It was yeah, garbage here television. Accurate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> love it. That's brilliant. Um, 
Good job, so, Hammond. I actually that was a good one. Good job. So yeah, the Order of Blessed Insight are um an exceedingly influential but small order um that is based down in Estalia and Tilia, and they have two primary factions, one of which is in Estalia, one of which is Atelia, one of which is grounded in Magrita, the other which is grounded over in Remus. Um, meaning that we have bluntly um an order that has two completely different I'm sure they factions. I'm sure like they talk shit about do. each other all the time. <laughs> they absolutely do. Um, so that's your order of blessed insight. Um, they're a fun we order, and loosely speaking, that's the seers of um Myrmidia. But they don't just have a, like a seer and that one celebrating and, and joins one of the other orders. It's they have an entire order of seers, and they have seers outside that order as well. Um, so yeah, they're quite fun. Um, to get into that order, you should be a seer, um, and uh, that's about it, really. Yeah, that's that it, order. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, uh, order like that would probably really struggle coming up north into the empire, for instance, because uh, the empire can have such a fortune telling. Up? No, it's essential that you have children unless you physically can't. Um, I had an NPC that um, had that one, and the point of that NPC was that she was unfortunately unable to have children for a variety of reasons, um, and that caused her enormous issues within her order because to advance. So she was a maiden, she was a maiden, she was a maiden, then she eventually she left the order and became a warrior priest. Um, she mm. could have argued it further, but eventually she just gave up because of the inherent, I mean, you could almost argue, it, it, tradition, and the tradition was so strong that she couldn't get over it. It was a mm. poor time for that poor character. It was a good one. <laughs> ah, but that's 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 what makes the best characters. It is, isn't it? Um, conflict, having problems. That's what makes the best stories. <sighs> okay, so that's Order of Blessed Insight. Oh, you can't help yourself, can you? They have a Sears? <laughs> is that where they go for things? Um, uh, I think it's also worth um picking up Sears. one of the <laughs> one of the primary orders, and that's the Order of the Blazing Sun. Um, the Order of the Blazing Sun is uh, a knightly order, and in terms of the overall cultist of Myrmidia, is tiny. It's really small. But in terms of its impact in the Empire, it is actually enormous. Truly enormous. The Order of the Knights of the Blazing Sun is, uh, is, is more influential in many respects than the Order of the Eagle, which is their priests um, up in the Empire. And there's a reason for that. The order was originally initiated during the Great Crusades. The Great Crusades mm -hmm, were a time when mm -hmm. Araby went assaulting its way through Estalia. Um, and uh, there was all manner of problems, Antilia as well, depending on which story you read. And they, got, they did a big call out for help, and the empire went, yeah, fuck off. Um, and so <laughs> a whole host of nobles went, you know what, this is actually an awful thing that's going on down there. The Sigmarites said, don't go, because defense, this is not our problem, it's their problem. Fuck those guys, um, where a whole host of individual quite honorable nobles went, no, it's our job, or those who were greedy and thinking, hey, look at oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can do this, let's go. So they went all piling down. Let's cut a long story short. At one point, the one who would become the very first uh, grand master of this order is saved by what he perceives to be a miracle. As an enormous, I love that story so much. Uh, an enormous uh, statue of Myrmidia falls down, crashing through um, a massive domed temple, and crushes their enemies, saving their lives. Yay! 
This was the was this the Battle of Magritta or was it this... wasn't Magritta? Um, yeah. uh, and uh, through that he sees the blazing sun shining down, casting shafts of light down through it. Mermidia lands in the monks, the middle of all the bad guys, and our imperial noble pretty much does this. I say, what was that? Who's this fellow? What's this goddess? Oh, really? Well, I say, well, she saved my life. You could tell me more about her, shall we? Did a little bit of to, a tour to, around. To be fair to him, it was pretty fucking miraculous because it, it didn't was. just crush anybody. It crushed Sultan Jafar's like number one general, who was a <laughs> horrible fucking guy. Splat! Um, I, I, do tell me more. I say, <laughs> um, I might be willing to convert to this particular thing if, 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 if there's something in it for me and all that. What? What? Cut a long story short, he ends up founding the Knights of the Blazing Sun. Um, because of that blazing sun, but also because the blazing sun of Mermidia is a classic piece of iconography with all of the primary disciples, apostles, followers, whatever you want to call them, of Mermidia being each one of the rays of the sun that comes out of it. Mm. Um, and uh, he hikes it back to the empire and founds himself the first chapter house for the Knights of the Blazing Sun just outside Ravenstein, which is in the north of Talapheim, not far away from Altdorf. So it's quite a nice central position. And he has zero influence. That's pretty much a nice way of putting it. He's yeah. formed himself a chapter house, but he has zero influence. But he does have ties through to the cult of Mermidia in general down in the south. Now, the cult of Mermidia in the empire at this point is effectively non-existent. He is worshipping an outside deity, worshipping celebrating. Depends how you put it. They're all having a drink. That much is certain. These are empire folk who view her as someone who's just, you know, saved their pants. They're reading their text. There's like, oh, it's war. War. Relulis. I like this. Apparently we should go for a jog in the morning. Oh, I'm not so sure about this. Can you just bit. imagine how obnoxious the very first chapter house of the Nice of Blazing Sun was? <laughs> uh, a bunch yes. of nobles. No idea what they're doing with a bunch of holy books. They go, wait a minute. Apparently, Mamidia came down and did the thing. You know what? We should all do that too. So part of their initiation, part of the process of becoming a Knight of the Blazing Sun is a one-year tour around about wherever the fuck you fancy going, doing the honorable thing, chopping down, spreading the word of Mermidia everywhere. Effectively, they all become like the littlest hobo. For those of you who like your old they become the Incredible Hulk from the old Incredible Hulk. It's highway to heaven time as they go from town to town like Kane. Um, if we want to go back to Pulp Fiction with um, good old Julius making reference where he's just going to go sort people's shit out. And that's what they do. They go from town to town, not proselytizing, because that's not really Mermidia's way. Just being generally good guys. Um, and they are all, every last one of them, noble, attempting to do their best. Not really being Mormons, doing the Mormon missionary. Much more like being just wandering helper-outers. Going from place to place to place in their army, going, I say, do you have any problems? Oh, you do. I'll go sort that out. Chop, chop, chop. Yeah. And then it's like, and being nobles, they like, you can't imagine how many times they would show up being like, I'm here to solve your problems. And people are like, who the fuck is this guy? What do you want? Um, and um, some of them, because uh, this is not the most, let's say, notorious of orders. People don't want to send their youngest sons or fourth sons or eighth sons to this order. They've all got there through one reason or another, often local. So most of them are Talabiklanders in birth at this point. But remember, Talabikland, as when we're this close to Altdorf, is really quite close to Reichland in general. It's right by the Barren Hills, and this is before it becomes mm. the Barren Hills. So at the moment, it's the Green Hills, the Grunhugel. And at this point, it's the greatest farmlands of the empire right beside 
Altdorf. Um, and they're right in the heart of this. And they spread out from here. And over the course of the next so many centuries, the order doesn't exactly expand much. It expands a bit. But they meet everyone because they tour the empire. They, there's stories of them up in Norska. There's stories of them in Kislev. There's stories of them on the other side of the World Age Mountains because some of them just never stop. And they come back from their one year being Myrmidia five years later, ten years later, having returned to the order, or most of them just die. Um, and away they go doing their thing and they come back again and they develop up there. Over the course of time, the uh, word of that order spreads. Someone's life was saved, so they go join the order. Someone else's life was saved, they come and join the order. Much like most of the knightly orders in the empire, it requires you to be noble. And at this point, they're all nobles. And they're coming in from all sorts. And let's skip almost a thousand years. <laughs> a thousand years of this. Yep. And we come to the Great War Against Chaos, 2302. Magnus the Pious puts out his call from Nuln, and he says, come to me, for a great evil is coming to the land from the north, and we must rally to stave this off. And it pretty much everyone goes, fuck you, Magnus, we've got our own problems <laughs> to deal with. No, but not Mermithin Jake, the Grandmaster of the... Knights of the Blazing Sun. He hears the call and he do. says, <laughs> and he says, yes. And there's a reason for that. Mervis and Jake comes from Hendorf, not more than 25, 30 miles away from Nuln itself. It's only a day away. This is his home, his hometown basically calling him. And he's like, yep, we're all coming. And they all went. He put the call out mm -hmm. to the whole order and hundreds of Knights of the Blazing Sun arrived in Nuln in support of Magnus the Pious. The first order to answer. Long before any Sigmarite order, long before any of the secular orders or any of the cults, they were there. And they were there from day one saying, yes, this is the right thing to do. And they worked hard. They worked their asses off. They fought not just at the battle, but they fought for Magnus. They fought for what they believed was the best thing for the empire, ultimately civilization. By this point, the cult of uh, Myrmidia had spread enough that their Myrmidian version was pretty close to actual Myrmidian values, strongly on war. And that was also super important. They were training people. They were explaining to basic soldiers how to fight. No, you can't do this. You need to be up earlier. You need to be training. Early, train, early, train. They were doing the job that the Sigmarite priests would later be also doing and being very annoyed that there was Myrmidians already <laughs> in completely ensconced into all of their units. Because the Myrmidians were there leading from day one. All nobles, all used to command. And that's why when afterwards the whole war's done and the Myrmidians lost an enormous amount of their number. Um, the uh, Knights of the Blazing Sun are down to probably about a tenth of their size. They've got mm. chapter houses, not very many, like 10, 50 of them spread around um, the empire in total. Hardly any of them survive. And when uh, Magnus sits down and says, we need to ensure that we never fragment as the empire did before. And when the next time that the gods of chaos attack, we are prepared, all the cults must talk. In the very beginning, he said, the cult of Myrmidia will sit at a table with all the other cults of the empire. Because I say so, because they answered me unlike you. And that meant that Myrmidia was suddenly front and center in the empire. Every seven years speaking directly to the emperor. And that continues right up to Karl Franz's time. And in, it pretty much ensconces Myrmidian worship into parts of particularly the nobility of the empire. And 
the order of um, uh, the Leorican order, which is very close to Nuln as well, ends up getting lots of imperial nobles coming along to learn strategy. Or alternatively, those who don't want to learn strategy and just want to fight, go join the Knights of the Blazing Sun or any of the other righteous <clears throat> fear orders. You know, Ooh, what's, inter quite what's interesting? Yeah, what's interesting to think about is that the Knights of the Blazing Sun really do play such a critical role in that in the uh the war against as far cool uh knights of the blazing sun need their own doom-esque metal theme for what they did for magnus yes they do um what's very very interesting is that nice one laughing mind gold. of being a knightly order with a lot of very wealthy people behind it they're almost all going to be cavalry mounted with like lots of fancy armor and weapons and stuff um that likely very much means that when the army split going towards the battle of the gates of kislev uh, the most of uh, Magnus's mounted troops originally went to Prague because they were supposed to go relieve the siege at Prague because Magnus didn't know Prague had fallen yet. He yeah. sent the cavalry to go relieve Prague and then he was going to go to Kislev to pick up all of those guys and then go to Prague. But the cavalry made it to Prague first and saw what was left. And mm -hmm. I imagine for the Myrmidians, it was probably one of the deepest, most horrible aspects of this is what it looks like when we fail. Uh, because with them they had the Kislevites that were the 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 um the um oh there's one from Mandatus. Hey Mandatus, how fitting it is I just discovered as I paint a shirt copper layered over Galthrico. Oh yeah, I can't even say the word. You've got to take over. Uh <laughs> As I paint, I should cover no layered over Balthazar gold gives me the perfect brass for my Dawizar greed and tyranny combined. <laughs> Thanks, Mandatus and Hammond. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I remember Electric Count uh, Lyano oh, Mormont berating the other orders that didn't answer the call to arms from Prince and Emperor Jon Snow. Um, Pretty much. It, yeah, it is It is really fascinating to see how that, once again, maybe not necessarily intended by the writers that did at the time, but how that would have dramatically altered uh, the Mermidian cult and really set them to almost probably a fever pitch of seeing what was left of Prague. Uh, and seeing what Asvar Kul and his legions had done to it. And then they came down from behind on top of Asvar Kul's army, which was critical. Like the night, that cavalry force is the only reason Asvar Kul lost. Yep. Um, his army, I, at least. I, I really enjoyed drawing that battle. I did it for one of the books and I, I got to draw the whole battle. Good times. <laughs> that was oh, a good the, uh, battle. Empire at War theater. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great yeah, Good times. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, but it's 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 fascinating to see that because a lot of people look at them and go, oh, it's kind of this offshoot southern cult that's in the empire. It's really not like mm. the Mermidian cult is critical to the empires that currently exist today. Yeah, um, and how it's been shaped, and you see that. Like if you read a lot of the role play material and stuff, is uh, Mermidian stuff is everywhere. It's all over the fucking place. Even if you're not actually dealing with any Mermidian characters, so to speak. You're gonna be dealing with a lot of Mermidian themes or Mermidian texts or Mermidian notes coming up among the various characters, especially if your character is into anything lore related when it comes to like lore warfare or lore mm -hmm. strategy or lore, which I guess would kind of be the same thing or uh, even things like um, like dealing with lawyers or other aspects of like highbrow types of civilization, which is interesting to think about. Yeah, the cult of Mermidia because of the. Uh, ramifications of the events of the Knights of the Blazing Sun at the <laughs> gates of Kislev, um, just supporting Magnus in general, becomes ensconced 
in pretty much all of the southern noble bloodlines at some level or another. The Temple of Myrmidia in Nuln becomes exceedingly important. The Knights of the Blazing Sun end up moving their prime chapter house over to Talopine, um, where they end up leading their chapter from as they uh, get a far more prominent position in one of the most important towns in the Empire. And that comes along with a big Temple of Myrmidia and another order uh, position of the Knights of the Righteous Spear. Um, it's 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 fundamental to the empire as it currently stands because the leadership of the empire hold uh, Myrmidia, the officer's god, as she's often referred to by most of the soldiers that are aware of her, because it is nobles that do it. All the officers in the state army are noble. It's an easy thing to forget that mm. pretty much all, bar the occasional, you know, this one was, you know, sharp style. Someone was raised up through the ranks, if you know sharp as a character. Uh, but the vast majority, if not all, are noble. Um, in almost every single last one of the state army regiments. It's how the state army is built. The nobles lead everybody else. Um, and that, because it's the officer's god, shows how much of an impact they've had, even though their numbers, in comparison to, say, the Cult of Sigmar, are tiny, super, super tiny. Yeah. They barely exist in comparison when you're looking at their numbers over in the Empire. Um, there's still a couple that we should cover before we stop. My goodness. Our time is <laughs> flying on us here. Yeah, we, we, uh, we get to questions soon because we have a decent number of them. Yeah, we do. Um, Because we should at least mention the Order of uh, Blessed Namid, the Leoricans. Yeah, and um, we did we did have that super chat earlier about notable characters in the modern timeline in the Empire. Yeah. Like the, the, nor the Eagle of the North. The Eagle of the North, um, Lorenzo Mar DeMarco. Um, yeah, there's a couple of different versions of him now. He's originally a character that I added um, to fulfill the, the fact there was a missing there was a big hole um, there, <laughs> yeah. um, and, the, and the entire there was no characters in Remedia, so I needed to patch a bunch of holes in there. Uh, Lorenzo DeMarco actually was the source for, um, in terms of when I was creating it, the source for the entire Blessed um, uh, Leorican Order, um, because Lorenzo DeMarco um, was in an older game of mine, a vampire, um, and I copied over a lot of the character traits for the eagle of the north that i made completely different he's not a vampire obviously he's the eagle of the north. <laughs> um but as i got down thinking i suddenly went huh and then i had a whole bunch of thoughts but that's a completely different thing um so lorenzo demarco cut a long story short uh lives in null he is the eagle of the north and he is responsible for all of the uh eagles the order of the eagle up in the empire the lot that entire unit is his and down over into Kislev as well. Um, and uh, he is much like most of the characters that are involved with um, the Myrmidians, a character of conflict between the Estalia Tilia pool. But and in the greater scheme of things, he is largely unimportant. Um, he is, in comparison to the many, many figures down in Tilly and Estalia, not just a secondary figure. He's beneath that because the Order of the uh, Order of the Righteous Spear aren't really under his command. The Blazing Suns are not under his command. There, there's lots of conflicting issues as to who commands whom, and yeah. most of it call comes down from uh, Tilia, where the Ultimate Eagle um, uh, controls pretty much the entire cult. Consider her like the Pope of the entire cult to use yeah, that she, term again. which it's worth noting with her real quick that she's a very interesting character the current version of her because she's trying to unite um the cult of Remedia, the Astalian Talayan halves and it is a bitch uh, well, yeah she is she's Talayan born but she moved the headquarters to Magritta like she moved yep. the, the the 
Colts center over to Magritte to be like, hey, I, I'm we're the same you know, thing. We're uh, we're all maybe worth picking that up in the question. I will pick that up in the questions rather than discussing the Leoricans just now because that'll be an easier way of dealing with it. Yeah, and they're coming in the questions later. Thanks, but, uh, appreciated. But she is uh, realizing that it's kind of a bitch of a time uh, because yeah. uh, the Tulaans were fucking furious that she moved out of uh, Maragliano. As is, you, you would expect. Imagine you're going to end up with, um, given that we're moving towards the end times, if you just take it towards what is a natural conclusion, we're going to end up with false ultimate eagles. Um, mm. Others claiming that they are, and that her leaving there effectively shows that she has betrayed the cult as it's understood. It is going to fragment and fracture rather than unite. Um, it is an almost ultimate expression of what the end times mean. We're moving towards the end times. Everything is breaking up. People are making decisions without necessarily thinking them through. The winds of magic are high. Their um, emotions are high. Things are going wrong. Yeah. Good Good intentions, but... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's also worth saying, just as a general um, uh, point, that as the cult of Myrmidia has been developed by others, the individual holy books have been given um, definite Estalian or definite Tillian groundings. Um, and they've taken them away from the original, not necessarily the original intentions per se, they've just added more intentions. And that's a nicer way of putting it. Um, and an easy way, if you want to marry both the older stuff and the newer stuff, is to just simply say some of them have been changed, some of them have been updated, some of them have been scavened. Um, and that allows you to have all of those different versions that conflict deeply. Some that say she was a stallion as a person born in Estalia, some she, she's Tillian born in Tilia. Some that say that she was never even a goddess at all and that it was just someone inspired by Myrmidia for the Eastern uh, Estalian lot. A uh, Western Estalian lot, pardon me. And uh, loosely speaking, they're, uh, it's, it's all broken down as to some believe loosely she was a goddess from there or a goddess from there. And the different holy texts say different things and the orders are fragmented across all of the southern old world because of this. Yeah. Alright, uh, I think let's go ahead and get, get started tackling questions. Before we do that, I would like to say something which um, we haven't said uh, yet, which is uh, if you are sitting out there and you have yet to subscribe to Loremaster's Sotex channel, I would ask, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Seriously, you're sitting here watching us wax lyrical about all the coolest lore shit and you haven't subscribed to him yet. Go do so now. His channel's just over there in a link somewhere down in something or another. Uh, go find it. Loremaster of Sotek. Well, if you're on YouTube, you'll find it down in the description for this video. If you're over on Twitch, well, Twitch is arcane. Who knows? Just type Loremaster of Sotek. You'll find him. Go subscribe. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, there is no some... Uh, I can't say what it is yet for reasons, but there's some really cool stuff coming out very soon. Um and yes and also subscribe to Lawhammer while you're here because I, you're literally here just click the fucking button it's right there seriously um, dude you're watching um, on my channel right now just press the button thanks uh huh all right our first question from Sean Raptor he says Myrmidia from what I can tell is derived from Myrmidons meaning ant people on account of being made from ants to repopulate an island of Greek myth does Warhammer's Myrmidia have any ant related myths or stories similar as a callback to what I think is her real world inspiration. Okay, so the, the name you're correct um, was drawn from that. That was Graham Davis who took um, another aspect of Greek mythology and applied it over to Athena. Um, and is there anything that's directly tied to that? I mean, not really. I, th I do believe they end up using the name Myrmidons a couple of times for the uh, close guards for uh, Myrmidia's peeps down in Magritta. 
Um, but um, there's not really any ant-based additions that I can think of. Have, if you, you want to make one? what would be a no, 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 absolutely <laughs> not. I can't um, think of if one. you want to make what could potentially be an absolutely fucking hilarious subcult, though, um, somewhere in the world, especially if if you wanted to do like a cult of Mermidia that's maybe around uh, somewhere in Nostalgia near a forest or in the Border Princes near the Forest of Gloom, who've had interactions with like the the uh, forest goblins and have adapted uh, like a weird ant based version of the Mermidian cult due to all their insectoid oh! problems, that could be yeah! fucking hilarious. Yeah, we okay. I'm going to answer a completely different question and give you two things because I didn't answer this earlier. I meant to mention it. Number one, um, Mermidia is far older in the empire than Mermidia worship alone. Mermidia has been worshipped in the empire for some time and is mentioned by the name of Margelio. Margelio ah, yeah, is, yeah. is a male aspected deity and a, a god of eagles and a god of intelligence and civilization and is absolutely Mermidia. There is not a, it might be, it might not be. Mermidia is not just a southern goddess. Um, Mermidia was known in the north under a different name, but Mermidia has come to be known by just Mermidia come not, uh, modern times. And as a small second other additional point, Mermidia is almost certainly not her name. Um, Mermidia, uh, Margelio might be her name, who can say? Um, Mermidia, uh, when you look at, at the very, source... Very true, word, yeah, that, I'm sure that city was probably founded by big boy yeah. Mermidians. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Mermidia in um, uh, the older classical language you go back just basically means beloved of Moore. It's almost the same as Moore's lead. Um, it's, it's, she's just Moore's daughter. It's, it's basically like, here's Moore and here's Moore's daughter, a classic way that <laughs> men often characterize women by a man. Um, but Mermidia is almost just the, the, the daughter of death. And you can imagine how that name may have arisen as a title when she was mortal, because she was pretty much bringing everything under her heel. Yeah. Mm. Makes you wonder, what is her name? Yeah, it does. What could it be? Indeed. Uh, mysteries within mysteries. Uh, Scripter Mortis Eldrin asks, uh, what do the prayers of Mermidia tend to focus on? So I, I'm guessing Did that I means... I said the name wrong. It's Margilio. Isn't that what I said? Just to make sure? Yeah, that is what you said. I thought that's what I said. If I didn't, I apologize for my slight mispronunciation of a name I made up. If, if you get mad about <laughs> pronunciations, I don't know why you watch anything that I'm involved with. Uh, but, uh, no, it would surprise me if I got it wrong. I apologize if I did. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that is actually a great question for Eldrin. Of if, if you have a warrior priestess uh, of Mer uh, Mermidia, what would her prayers be towards? What would they kind of sound like? What would be the theming? Okay, first, they would almost certainly be in classical, so go get your Latin books out, because that makes for some super fascinating um, translations. Don't just use Latin, though. Jump into Greek, because classical is not Latin. Classical is a pseudo-Latin. It uses Latin and Greek and a bit of English for its mix-up, and we can tell that by the many terrible translations that we've had in a variety <laughs> of books through time, which is absolutely brilliant for someone like me if I've ever been translations in Warhammer? What? <laughs> what? You want what? Um, so, first things first, they'd all most certainly being classical um because that's the original language that uh, they were speaking back then second one almost all of the myths around Mermidia inspire the prayers so when you're doing a particular prayer you are redoing something Mermidia did so think of that as the source for what you're attempting to summon down to summon forth 
So, for example, if you're getting the eyes of an eagle and seeing something far away, you're getting the insight of literally Mermidia's insight when she was mortal looking out over the battlefield. It's all about taking on the aspects of Mermidia um, and becoming a better general or a better example of yourself. But if you're looking to expand Mermidia into its many other orders, do try to think about what she represented as a whole, not just the battlefield aspect of her, because she is, after all, the goddess of most things down in the south oh i yep. almost hit a rant there and if you're if you're looking for some really cool inspiration about what that would actually sound like as you potentially try to translate into pseudo latin pseudo greek pseudo something uh i would heavily recommend go watch the lawhammer series and see how andy talks about whenever um sage uses a a uh, Ronaldin prayer and the way he kind of says what that would sound like what sage would be muttering to herself and it's it's fucking awesome and that can serve as excellent inspiration for where to go from there also watch Lawhammer series uh anyway um watch lawhammer i mean yeah watch lawhammer oh dude the last episode fucking bonkers it (laughs) it was like it's a perfect one where you watch and you're like oh great now i gotta go watch like the last five over again so i can look for the shit i may have missed um it's great it's fucking awesome um let's see uh outside the night oh oh, okay we're gonna skip that because that there's no way to answer that it's gonna just be too big uh oh okay here's a cool one does the cult of Mermidia have any notable relics outside of the books loads freaking freaking tons of them um pretty much every single blessed saint is going to have relics uh they are a relic heavy cult much like the cult of sigmar so relics are going to be everywhere blessed knuckle bones the skull of whomever yeah saint, or so-and-so's spear so-and-so exactly. shield so-and-so's helmet yeah all of that yeah they, this is one where you should be redolent in prayer scrolls and relics if you are a priestess that comes from the south for example and yeah, and there's probably a lot of fakes, though. I'm sure if you ever wanted to make a campaign around a crazy cool magic item, the original spear Mermidia stabbed the Duke with would probably be crazy important if yeah. the real one could be found. I'm sure nobody actually has I mean, it right that, now. That's an actual campaign, and I'm quite convinced that both Magrita and um, Remus have their own version of it. Oh, yeah. Claiming that they've got it. And I, um, I bet both of theirs is not actually the real one. <laughs> totally. That's a campaign in and of itself. Uh, let's see. Uh, what is the relationship of the cult of Mermidia with the other major empire cults? It's, um, it's tense. Tense. Cult of Ulrich does not like the cult of Mermidia because the cult of Mermidia is making significant inroads across Middenland. The cult of Sigmar doesn't like the cult of Mermidia yeah, because, because it's pretty much standing on their territory in many ways. Um, outside the empire, Sigmar is seen as a god of war. Um, as much as Mermidia is seen as a god of war outside of the south of the old world. Um, And there's an awful lot of potential overlap, even though the gods are massively different. Mm. Um, And uh, I think it's quite quite important to ensure that those, those tensions are made clear. But the tensions are mostly with the old gods, not necessarily the new. And by that, I mean the classical gods. So more no tension really there at all. Verena, no real tension. They're all connected because they're all part of the same loose pantheon where the other gods have got older, different tales and their cults, particularly in the Empire, put far more importance on their tales than the tales that are told in the south of the Empire, which wrap them all up in the same pantheon. But in the north, they're not seen as the same. They're made quite separate. The classical gods that have come from the south and thus there is quite a lot of tension, particularly Mermidia, because she's um, given such an important role by Magnus and is taking advantage of it. 
Yeah, I would say of all the classical gods, Mermidia is probably the one that the old gods of the Empire have the biggest headbutting with on a regular basis. They do not. She threatens them, and they don't like yep. that. The cults don't like to be threatened. Uh, let's see. What weapons are most associated with Mermidia? Spears. Spear. Spear. Uh, Good old spear and shield. It's classic. Yeah. Um, and that also goes straight down to Pike. The big long Yeah, Pike, Pike and shot. Big old uh, Mermidia. Absolutely. Focus. Oh, Mandatus has dropped in there. Uh, split in Mermidia understanding leading to bloody availability of Tilly mercenaries versus Verbo's deconstruction of a stallion duelist is fascinating. Completely agree. Yes. Uh, and that, if you ever wanted to put two potential characters in a room, that would be fucking hilarious. It is... A, tele- a very devout Talayan mercenary versus a very devout Estalian duelist. That would they would probably be hysterical with how much they would hate each other, but from an outside perspective, be very similar in a lot of ways. Totally. I'm, I, I say this also just upon thinking about the Talayan mercenaries. There, it's also worth saying that many writers um, with Mermidia have attempted to directly tie Mermidia to the almost ephemeral Reman Empire. So that's the empire that came out of Remus. Um, and some have said that it was Mermidia's. That's basically Mermidia's empire. Um, so all of the Roman equivalent and Roman looking features that you see in many of the Tilian models come from Mermidia's empire, for want of a better description. At least that's what many Tilians say. Having said that, though, many sources say that the Tilian Reman Empire is way older than when she came back. Um, so you'll find that there's lots of conflicting chat, largely because the Remus Empire never really took root. Yeah, there was... There was a weird phase where, like, they really wanted to have just Rome, like, literally just the Roman Empire. Um, and that's where we get, like, the whole incident with Curious Geezer and Albion and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but when you actually sit down and look at the timeline, it doesn't fit anywhere. And there's no evidence of them ever showing up anywhere. And it's weird. And what ended up happening was we got a tension between writers, particularly in the role play game, wanting to add it back in and the studio saying, nah. Um, and and that meant that there was snippets here and there that kept on getting added later. But whenever the studio took over again, they'd like, oh, now let's just rewrite that. I don't like it. We don't need Roman Empire. Uh, that conflicts with our Sigmar focus that we have. The yeah, Empire which, is their focus. Yeah, which is a shame. But like, so like when I, whenever I talk to people about it, it's like I can kind of consider like the city state of Remus was Rome um, as opposed to like the entirety of everything. Britney Spears. Ah. Heaven, get out! <laughs> you know, I think I think there is uh, a good argument for if you were wanting to mesh it all together and make it make sense to have an empire approximately two thousand years ago that Mermidia put in place that was the Reman Empire um, that built out from Remus, arguably when she conquered it or came from it, depending on which version of Mermidian worship you want to go for, and that installed Attilian Empire, Attilian yeah. Empire then breaks up over the course of the next so many centuries. But an empire that perhaps moves across the border princes, perhaps has some issues with the south of the empire and into Britonia. We've got, I think the timeline has more than enough space to include that. Yeah, um, a lot of uh, fun of that Remus was able to take the best advantage yeah. of the fracture that happened after Mermidia died. 
And I, and I think that that makes a good application of it. And that's hinted at in a host of books already. So it's not exactly a controversial thought. But I think if you're looking for a way for your own games to try and think of where does all of this Roman influence down in Tilia come from? What's the core starting point? My preference would probably put it there rather than try to backdate it before Sigmar into a very ephemeral time that we know is slightly different. Yeah, no, it should, it should be post-Mermidia in my opinion. It would make yeah. way more sense. Um, though hilariously, there have been some stupid goofs. Like, I feel bad for anyone that wants to make like a genuinely interesting Roman type story because you have like Curious Geezer, who of course Curious Geezer can just fuck off. Terrible stupid <laughs> name. He's a modern character. Like you, I know. Name, you'd expect from his name that oh, he's from way back. No, nah, he only died like ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, that that was yeah. It literally makes no sense at all. That was um, a Nigel Stillman, as I call the king of the terrible puns yeah uh, th that's a character that i'm fine with pretending just doesn't exist uh or at least maybe he stole his name from a much cooler character from way back <laughs> uh yeah definitely 100 not a vampire not suspicious at all um although lorenzo DeMarco, for those of you who vampire lore in my old game was a la sombra there you go uh, all right, so uh, next question. Uh, would it have made sense for Mermidia to incarnate again to lead her people in the fight in the end times? It, not, no, it doesn't make sense. It just should have happened. It should have happened. Oh, God, that one upsets me more than I care yeah, to mention. Remember, the end times is always trash because it wasn't about the world. It was about just the empire, which is stupid. Yeah, um, the end times was about the properties they were focusing on. Yeah, it, you know, I will say one of the things that gives me a lot of hope for the old world, I don't know if this will end up panning out, but one of the things that gives me a lot of hope is they're not starting with the Empire, mm. which please, please, God, let it be about the actual setting and not just that was the worst thing about later fantasy is that mm. it got more and more and more focused on the Empire, arguably more and more focused on Reichland um, and just stopped mm. caring about the rest of the world, which was trash. And I hate it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, does Meridia have any noble, notable interactions with other gods? I imagine her and Sigmar would have had interesting stories to share with one another. Would have been cool. Unfortunately, I think outside of the classical pantheon, because they were all together. Um, not really. Yep. Would have been cool, though. And if you ever wanted to tell a fun story, you could have a lot of fun with, like, either a Mermidian that, like, ends up falling to the cult of Sigmar or a cult of a Sigmarite falls to the cult of Mermidia, having a vision or a belief that the two of them have met or encountered like could you imagine if there was a mermidian who tried to convince sigmarites that sigmar when he left west eventually encountered mermidia along his travels and ended up having like a whole thing that'd be wild and potentially yeah. really fucking heretical uh let's see is the cult of mermidia very evangelical and looking to proselytize or do they largely tend to keep to themselves Right, that's a complicated question because it gets wrapped up in real-world versions of what religion is. And the answer is, is it anything like real-world versions of religion? No, absolutely not. Um, these are not uh, wandering around spreading their faith because they believe that they've got the only one true way. They are far oh, more... Sigmar went east, sorry, not west. Yeah, yeah, quite, I, I was waiting. Um, uh, and... I think one big one that you should consider is that they are far more, now I'm going to use this word, insidious, um, in that they believe in building and working with others. 
So they're far more likely, much like we discussed earlier with the Knights of the Blazing Sun, to be helping folk out, working with local communities, doing what they think is the right thing, um, being front and centre when it comes to potential conflicts because it's something that they themselves have studied in depth. So they're going to be there being constantly helpful and that will just by its very nature drag people around going, well, these guys are useful, you know, they help me out man. And th th this here actually knows about how to handle crops because that's a part of their teaching. And apparently I should be growing fruit and eating fruit every day. What? And vegetables. Yeah. Nobles tell me I should just be doing, and I'm being told by this, and that, that's the, they've got a conflicting view as to the standard accepted view. You've got to remember that unlike the real world, we have divine providence providing real information. Her mother is the goddess of wisdom quite literally knows everything and she goes hey mom how can i make the best army this is how yep <laughs> right so i need to train my soldiers i need to make sure they eat right i need to bet i need to look after their mental health as well as their physical health i need to properly properly build this up which involves right from the top all the way down to their community building as well so it's not so much that they proselytize they're just damn helpful yeah um yeah uh oh god I, the the bit you mentioned about uh physical mental health just cracks me up because i remember there being notes about myrmidians when they're with other cults on the battle marching to battle the myrmidians are up in the morning like jogging and push-ups and all this other stuff the other cults are like the fuck are they doing <laughs> <laughs> why are they doing this shit what's wrong with them uh it's funny um how much uh eldrin how much political power does the church of myrmidia have quite a bit enormous yeah yeah, they Both are enormous. They're stronger than you would suspect, considering how often they're just referred to as a southern cult. Oh, Ricky Scotty, thank you for the hey, Ricky. Thanks. In the Temple of the Great Horned Rat and the nearby states of Estalia uh, have extreme forms of worship of Myrmidia. Is it safe to say this area of the world has a lot of hish drawn to it? All areas of the world do. It's just so diffuse that most don't see it. Um, and the answer is yes. I suppose. Yeah. If um, anything, I would say the Temple of the Horned Rat is probably more cloaked in Olgu by this point. Like, because the mm -hmm. whole city is hidden and the Skaven are all about being hidden in stealth. It is probably the antithesis of his ish almost. Um, there'll be some hiss there too, though. Uh, it, it, there some. will be, but it's, yeah. it, it's a dark, terrible, shadowy place. It is. But, um, uh, the, the mistake is, is thinking of hish as a good wind. It's a common, common. Fallacy. Yeah, no, there's no such thing it as good or not. bad winds. Uh, winds. Oh, it's the wind of overthinking. Oh, that's very skaven. The, yeah. the wind of sitting there going, <laughs> oh, yeah, you get a lot of skaven in that one. But yeah, yeah, there would be metric tons of hish around. Mm. But yeah, like Andy says, hish is, it's really fucking everywhere. It's just nobody mm. notices. Yeah, um, totally. Like there's, there's a reason that I actually am really fond of the fact that hish is being so strongly tied to wind. Um, because that's how a lot of wizards would merely perceive it. It's just the wind. It's not magic. It's just the wind. It's fine. Um, anyway, uh, what's more? Uh, we're, okay, we already answered that. Um, we already answered that. Uh, is Myrmidia secretly Bellacor, Lilaith, or Ladriel? We need to know. <laughs> yes, all of them. Clearly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so uh, there is uh, an overall bigger thing to discuss there and i'm not going to go into any depth and that is um can a god manifest the answer is probably yes maybe if there is a loophole here or is it something else and i alluded to this earlier ulric wanders the mortal plane if you believe certain ulricans and if that's true what does he do 
it's broadly understood that he possesses people. So yeah. he does exactly what Ariel does. He does exactly what, not Ariel does, well, what Ariel is, pardon me, what yeah. Orion is, a possessed entity, someone who is manifesting something physical. But he, he that dots around potentially into mortals and has kids. That's how he can do it. Has Mermidia actually done this? And if the answer is no, then you've got a really interesting question. Who did? Yep. And, you know, we've talked about on prior Lorebeard streams, you know, gods aren't supposed to be able to manifest, but there was that whole incident with Sotek. And there's also been two, there's also been two incidents with the Great Horned Rat. Mm. And there's been a couple of incidents with other gods, which are very suspicious. <laughs> totally uh, true. Uh, CB4N, anything special for Mermidia in the city of Myrmidons? Ooh, uh, Border Prince lore is very it's weak, scant. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's weak. Um, so I would the say answer... it's only founded by Myrmidians. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember much. That's the one. Myrmidons, it's on the... It's, it's on... right down at the south, isn't it? Yeah, it's right on the coast. So that like yeah. piece I, of I the borderlands that comes off, it's right at the bottom of that. that... Yeah. Um, I can't remember much about it at all, which is a real pain. I'll check it up for later just in case anything comes out from it. Um, it's really annoying me. Um, yeah, I don't remember my own beliefs. notes. The only I don't book think that... there's anything there. Yeah, the only, the literally, the only book we pretty much have that expands on the Border Princes is the uh, second edition roleplay um, thing, which was actually kind of more about the Badlands in a lot of ways. Like, it had a lot of Border Prince stuff in it, but it, bad, the Badlands took up a lot of the book. There's a part of me that thinks that I might have um, dropped it in Adventures of Foot in the Reichland, just as I mentioned, because I've got this tingly memory of it. I'll go check it up for later. Loosely, there's nothing special written in, but the, uh, there's going to be more towns, villages, and such like that have got direct ties to Mermidia in Estalia than, well, as many as Sigmar do over in the Empire. Just because somewhere might be called Sigmarhof or Sigmar's Rest or Sigmar's whatever doesn't necessarily mean there's anything special involved with it. Other than Sigmar's Rest may be where the local legend claims Sigmar sat down on his way over to the border princes for one reason or another and had a rest. And you could do exactly the same for good old um, Myrmidons there. Perhaps this is somewhere that she had a particular victory or this is somewhere where she had a rest or she met someone like for example, Namud, the Black Maiden, or something similar. You could build some tales around it, but there's none that I can recall. And it's really yeah, bugging or, me. Or, you know, who do, maybe that's where she, like, uh, anointed the first of what became an order of uh, Myrmidons or something. Sure, like, I'll do. Warriors or something. Who knows? But something probably happened there of interest, um, especially with how close it is to Talea. Um, of, like, of, of the various border princes, it is, like, super fucking close to where the border of Talea ends. Um but so there's probably Epicarian. Epicarian. It's where it's where we put Epicarian. We said he came from Myrmidons. I'm almost certain. And the um there you go. from right, no, right there. So um I definitely used it because I remember you mentioning it somewhere. So it's definitely been used. Um, but we didn't mention anything about <laughs> okay. Myrmidia. Sorry, this com this comment just made me laugh because it's it is what it is. <laughs> the religious tourist traps. Oh, oh that God's been here. Come by, spend money. <laughs> there are good. There are so many of them in the Empire. We, I wrote so many of them into the setting in so many places, and the same is the case down in the south. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, th that is like you jest, but that that is so much of what just the old world is oh, is religious tourist oh, traps. Or one gigantic. It's got an entire street, Echtstrasse, um, uh, which is right beside the um, all the main the major temple of. Uh, Sigmar, and it's just full of people selling religious nonsense that have just been made up. Uh, let's see, Elise Spartan. Um, 
Uh, okay, so I think we've already talked about the Athena stuff. Uh, was she born from her father's skull? Unfortunately not. She has a mom. Um, no, but who knows? Maybe she yeah. came out. Uh, though I wouldn't be surprised if there may be some myths about her being born from a dream or something along those lines yeah. with how more is. Because uh, that would yeah. kind of tie that Zeus mythology very nicely. So I would strongly recommend that you don't read any one of the tales as a definitive version of it. Because... It's very easy for us to say, I'm as a writer, oh, Myrmidia comes from X, Y, and Z. But when you're down in the ground in the Warhammer world, dealing with myths that do not spread too well, because for all there is trade moving between them, individual areas hold on to their ancient traditions forever, pretty much. There's going to be almost as many myths out there as there are people. And the only myth that you can say is real is what? The one that the High Temple says? But that town over there, which also has a High Temple, has a completely different myth. So don't take the God-eye view and ex uh, like our objective view as writers writing into it and expect that there's going to be one answer to this. The answer is, as many people as out there have beliefs are going to influence this sort of thing. There's so many ancient texts. Yeah, and honestly, with her being, her name literally being like beloved of more, like mm. a focus on daughter of death, I actually really like the idea of her almost being born from like a, a almost a, in a sense, a nightmare that her father has of war and this fully armored woman emerging from this dream and that being his daughter. There's a lot of really cool strengths in that. Yeah. One um, on that, um, one of the things that I was quite keen to do was there is a certain Puritan puritanical um, version of Mermidia that was being uh, put around that was quite different to how many of the goddesses were portrayed, particularly in uh, Mediterranean uh, myths. So one of the things that we encoded quite hard was that temples, particularly down in the south, often portray Mermidia and her various heroes um, naked and a very mm. classical fashion with their shield and storm. And they are seen as utterly unacceptable up in the empire with good old prudish <laughs> Sigmar ruling the roost. And I find it really fascinating because um, that loosely makes sense and it gets picked up by some, but some writers refuse to write it because they themselves are prudish. And whenever they read it, they're like, you could not have somebody's breasts out. Even <laughs> though one of the, to the point that one of the most famous um, uh, locations for Mermidia, the Breasts of Mermidia, a tavern that was introduced by uh, Kim Newman, was renamed the Breastplate of Mermidia because someone felt that it might be slightly offensive. Oh my goodness. That's just, just ridiculous. The Breast of Mermidia is a fully acceptable name for a tavern on the street of 100 taverns. Thanks very much. You were um, born naked, people. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, get over it. It's just a body. Um, yeah, so uh, you'll find that there's quite a lot of mention. The fourth edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, for example, does indeed state that um, they're often scandalously dressed in nothing more than a couple of scarves and weaponry um, as the statuary, the, the, the perfect visions of them in comparison to the more empire version of it, which might pop up as they somewhat puritanically carve it plate. In, 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 <laughs> in plate. Because really, we don't want the best plate of Mermidia, not the best. Woo! <laughs> uh let's see uh does mermidia have the owl as an icon such associated nope. animal due to wisdom no that's her mother uh verena is all about owls yep um, so the wisdom aspect is taken by the mother so it's not a, it's quite some distance from a direct uplift and translation of the greek gods which is they good take aspects, and it is good they are yep. their own thing and the development of mermidia later didn't add so much more from Athena per se. It just made the goddess a far bigger goddess, um, taking inspiration from several sources. 
Yeah. Uh, so these are a couple other questions about. Um, okay, so a lot of the questions from Elite Spartan are kind of in of comparisons between Athena and Mermidia, um, yep. which I will say that. Uh, are there other gods and goddesses based off the Greek pantheon from our world? Uh, the elf, elven pantheon has a lot of very strong Greek yeah. um, things, like Hephaestus to Vol, yeah. um, and like uh, just if if you compare okay. the pantheons, there's a lot of very strong connections there. So let's uh, answer that in a slightly different way. The gods of Tilia are based on elven gods, and the reason for that is because the Tylos people, when they arrived had elven ruins everywhere. Yep. They, they examined these elven ruins, some of which they understood, other of which they didn't, and their gods are, you could argue, either A, based on what they understood, that's one way of viewing it, B, the elven gods themselves working through and contacting them, that's totally fair if you wish to view mm -hmm. it that way. Alternatively, they're entirely new gods that those um, uh, Tylos people developed. You could argue that too. What's certain is that the Tilian people, as they are today, all the way back with their first tribes that moved through that area, were massively influenced by the elven ruins that they came into. The first language came out of here. Verena is said to have given them classical, literally given it to them. In later editions, that possibly came through Myrmidia. So Verena passed it down through to them through Myrmidia, possibly as a mortal who actually provided it and taught them how to write down shit and how to translate some of the elven ruins they were in. Kavzar was almost certainly an elven ruin to begin with. Um, and they were in there looking at the ancient things and going, we can do better than this. We can raise ourselves higher, which is eventually why she hiked it and went, yeah, no, you're getting this all wrong. You're doing it wrong, people. Um, but loosely speaking, Yes, the elven gods strongly influenced the lot, and almost all Tilian gods have got an elven root. Yeah, there's um, I think there's a later question about this, um, but there is a really fascinating amount of um lore about where the gods might have come from of all the various cultures. But the people of Tilea are especially fascinating because there are various hints that they might be people that were either pushed out or were at the very furthest extents of the Nehekaran Empire that also encountered these elven ruins. So you potentially have this really interesting idea that their pantheon might almost be a fusion of the Nehekaran pantheon with the elven pantheon, um, which both of those have really fascinating roots of are the elven and Nehekaran pantheons original or are they interpretations of the old ones, but different interpretations, which gets really mind fucky, um, which if you ever want to, you can have some, a lot of fun playing around with that. That's one of my favorite things to do is trying to figure out what might've inspired the various deities. Um, but the, the classical gods in particular are potentially a very fascinating distillation of, if you want to look at it that way of like old ones, split into elven and human cultures and then coming back together and then being reinterpreted which is fascinating not necessarily true but fascinating yeah there's um it's uh, been a dominant part of much of my contributions for religious texts um as i've either worked on or worked with other writers worked on books probably worked with other writers because um there are certain things you can and can't say in the warhammer um, setting and i have particularly enjoyed adding extra mud to that water because it's a fascinating subject that deserves to not be simple. And too many people want to simplify it. It is a complicated, deeply religious and important thing for the entire world, exactly what its root is. And just simply saying it's this does it a disservice. 
uh valister i actually think hey, really i think that's actually a really interesting point um of that the ancient people of tylos the best way for them to understand Elthar, uh, would have been through their dwarf allies who would have who would have been able to translate it though their translations probably would not have been accurate and it also depends on whether those dwarves were um entirely willing to do so remember yeah, yeah. It's, this is post the War of Vengeance. Yeah, and it's not that long in the grand scheme of things, after, the, especially from a dwarven perspective. Uh, yeah, after the War um, of Vengeance. But we do have an entire dwarf community that is uh, willing to move into what are probably elven ruins. So I think there is a fascinating <clears throat> tale that has not been told there. And I purposefully, when I was writing aspects of this, left it obscure and made it interesting. There was a very weird tale with the Doom of Kazvar and exactly how that works. And then once you realize where it is, what's going on there and the other influences around it, it doesn't make any sense. So you add in a few extra bits to try and give hints as to what happened without doing so. But we have an entire dwarven community that does not live as standard dwarves. Yep. That's fascinating. And, uh... I, I do want to bring this up because I feel like it's a perfect question for Andy. Uh, do you have any advice for portraying a nun, monk, or priest of Bermidian Wolfrop? Uh, right, so... To, loosely, especially to be different from a Sigmarite. Yeah, very loosely. If you're looking at um, uh, how to make them different, try not to make them warrior priests of Sigmar by making them far more at one with the local communities and not proselytizing, saying that they have to defend themselves by protecting their minds or all chaos worshippers must be hunted down and rooted. That's not Myrmidians. Myrmidians about helping people. And that's a really good place to start. Um, check the rest of the streams because we've gone through uh, the rest of the stream because we've gone through a host of different um, aspects of how Myrmidia represents herself. But if you're looking for the warfare side, go intelligent. Um, start thinking about uh, advising people how to properly and intelligently defend or flee something that Sigmarites don't like doing. They like to protect mm. affairs. Suggest fleeing. Suggest trickery. Suggest ambushes. Suggest doing things that Ulricans don't like, who are honorable in a very different way. They're all about one-on-one -on -one conflict. No, if you've got into conflict, you've probably lost already. That's not how it's meant to be. You should take out their army before it even reaches conflict. Um, they've got very different views on how battles should be conducted. So think about how you could do things intelligently and also think about how you could do them differently to defensive Sigmar or offensive Ulrich. And that allows you to get a slightly different character to uh, be presented. Yeah, I would also really uh, go with the trope of like almost a heroic way of fighting of as long as your opponent isn't like super fucking evil or corrupted, offer mercy um like oh, oh you, every time yeah you defeated the bandit and you've beaten him like he's he's down but uh do you kill him from a marmarian perspective no you shouldn't you should spare him and he sh should and importantly take the socratic method method as in ask them questions and draw out the answers you're looking for so you take down the bandit and your first question is so what did you do wrong yeah why did you lose why are you doing this and then him going what the fuck is going on now yeah, whereas Sigmarites, <laughs> very heavily influenced by dwarfs, would say, he's bad, hammer face. Absolutely. Ulricans, uh, yeah, are brutal. Incredibly yeah. brutal. So yeah, ask questions. That's a good way of putting it. Rather than telling people what to do, Yeah, you know Uncle questions. Iroh from Avatar, when he has yeah. that scene with the bandit? That's the Myrmidian way to deal with it. Damn straight. Hey, Hammond! Castle Blackstone and... I don't Apicarian. know. Apicarian. Apicarian was from Myrmidon. Thank you very much. I couldn't remember if it was Apicarian. I was uh, losing my mind at the back there. It was really bugging me. 
Thanks very much. I really appreciate you confirming that. I okay, we're going to blow through the rest of these uh, really fast because we're almost out of time. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know where it went. I, we had an hour to go, and all of a sudden it's been 50 minutes. It just flies um, through, yeah. So uh, just going through some of these other Mermidian things, uh, does Mermidian have anything to do with olives and bringing them to the people of Talaya? Um, there is no uh, piece of lore that I think is directly influenced by that that I can recall. Um, uh, anything about but Mermidian? I see no reason that it couldn't be. Yeah, that would be easy to add, actually. Yeah, uh, anything to do with Mermidian spiders? Um, not that I'm aware of. Of uh, spiders tend to get very much gobbled no. up by the spider god, who is a full yeah. thing in and of itself, which would be awesome yeah. to do a stream on sometime if y'all ever want to vote for that. Spider god. Normally, normally, crazy. I mean, spiders are often um, work more with artif artificers, so you'd be looking at a vol equivalent more likely. So, yeah, no. Yeah, because uh, yes, while Athena did create the first spider with the whole uh, arachne myth and the the weaving and all that stuff, um, that that does not seem to tie much into um, Remedia. Uh, Kabanda, <laughs> I haven't started my post for so long, I missed most of the stream. But anyway, does Mermidia and Corn have a relationship like the Terran god Athena and Ares? And uh, um, that they hate each other? Yes. They do not get on. We discovered this. Uh, did we discovered? We did. We covered this earlier in the stream. Um, uh, yes, because corn, corn is a threat to Mermidia because corn represents a loss of intellect on the battlefield, a loss of strategy as you turn to pure fury, rage, and just the blood flowing for whatever reason. So that is the antithesis of what much of Mermidian worship uh, represents when it comes to warfare. So there's a lot of a lot of work to ensure that the cult does not get corrupted in that direction. Yeah. If anything, so, I would say yeah. like the thing that Mer would disgust Mermidia the most on the battlefield would be wanton bloodlust for the sake of it. And that's literally Korn's favorite fucking thing. Indeed, it's almost certainly behind some of the reasons for their rules of war to ensure that you do not kill capture prisoners, that you do not slaughter. You're not there to slaughter. You're there to win. Winning is important. Hey, yeah. Sam. Got uh, to the stream super late, unfortunately, but curious on how you would use Mermidia in the end times. She uh, would we come... talked about that earlier. Uh, yeah. Deeply wound the Skaven, but ultimately lose. Quite. Oh, Charcoal Briquette. So, so I would say sacrifice herself for the greater good would kind of be Absolutely. the perfect way for Mermidia to go down. Um, Oh, uh, thank you all for the super chats. I, we're not going to have time to answer all the questions from Discord. I'm so yeah. sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, it we'll, happens. We'll get as many as we can. Uh, Charcoal, one of my players killed a hedge wizard who had done business with the tribe of beastmen by cutting his throat when he refused to answer her questions. What would Mermidia think? That would be a big no. Big no. Yeah, like, no. you're just, that would not be tactical at all. Like, you're no. sacrificing information for a moral quandary? Absolutely no. not. Absolutely no. not. Yeah, definitely not. That, that would be, uh, th there's a teachable moment there, and no teaching has been done. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe his nightmare is living in Wyoming. <laughs> oh, God. Um, um, so, do we have any um, Black Maiden questions? Because um, uh, it would be good to cover that a little bit because it's quite a big thing there. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm just blasting through what little things we have left okay, here. Let's go. Uh, iconography of priestesses, uh, followers of Mermidia that represent her. Um, oh, Sons, so big iconography. Eagles. Sun, Suns, spears. eagles, spear shields. There you go. Yep. Round shields, um, uh, often with an eagle. And uh, okay, uh, are there any stories that have to do with a rogue Gorgon uh, involving Athena and the, her priestess going after them? Gorgon without an H. Their bloody should be. Um, yeah, should be. Uh, and, I would be. I would say there is. It, it just yeah. hasn't been told, but there absolutely and should be. All manner of mythical creatures should be. Because there's into this. Mermidia, Mermidia would be the. Way. 
a a a saint of Mermidia would be the one to figure out to reflect a Gorgon stare back at them. Like yeah, that would that awesome. would be a Mermidian. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, does Mermidia? Uh, we talked about. Okay, we talked a little bit about Nehekara. There is absolutely something between the Nehekaran gods and the classical gods. It's not very well expanded on, but there's absolutely something there. Cetra's empire reached all the way up to where modern day Talea is in Astalia. Like Cetra's empire was fucking huge. Yep. Um, uh, included all of it. Um, yeah. And the answer to this is beyond the fact that she is the, the primary goddess outside of um, Mathlan or any equivalent of Manan you prefer. Not really. Yeah, uh, Sartosa, the land of pirates. Pirates, if anything, would are are kind of a slap in the face to what a lot of Mermidia stands for. They are cutthroat and brutal, and their primary god tends to be Stromfels, who himself is a god of brutality. Like mm -hmm. Stromfels, you take prisoners to extort them, to torture, to get all the benefits you can out of it. It's about being brutal, like how the sea and sharks are brutal. Um, Sartosa, There'll be Mermidians there, though. Just, yeah, just yeah, and they would be there, but uh, yeah. there would be a lot of headbutting, a lot of headbutting. Do, do remember polytheism? Don't get lost on a single god at any point. Yeah, uh, Sir Beardington, are the Knights of the Blazing Sun just a branch of her cult, or are they more like Grail Knights? We've uh, covered that. More of a, uh, yeah, yeah we covered, covered that. that. Yep. Um, does Mermidia appreciate have if you own... could appreciate if you could cover at least Q's six, seven, and eight from Hammond? Uh, I will do that just now. Uh, does Mermidia okay. have her own demons? Yes, um, all, all the gods have their own demons, blessed servants, the most classic example of which would be a blessed eagle, which would f fly over, or six. one of the saints returning. Uh, oh, okay, six, seven, eight. Uh, let's see. Um, is uh, Can you say anything about what... It's a pool. Someone hasn't seen One Piece. Uh, <laughs> one Piece! I don't, I don't think Luffy and his buddies would like the Pirates of Stromfils very much. No, uh, I don't think probably be so. major antagonist to Luffy and his There'd buddies. be a fight, and it'd be stretchy. Um, It'd be great, though. I'd watch it. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, let's see. So, six, seven, eight. Uh, just want to make sure I tackle these first. Uh, can you tell us anything about the scrolls found by Leoric uh, Mampaletti in the uh, Apuccini Mountains, said? Yes. Okay, so a bunch of scrolls were found, which were the testament of Namud. Namud the Black, as she was referred, because she had skin almost like midnight black, um, because she came from the south way deep in the Southlands, and she'd been warring down there with an individual by the name of Iscarius. Um, she pops up in a couple of the holy texts of Mermidia, given very little, and this is the entire testament is found. A whole order was um, built around them called the Leoricans, and they couldn't read them because it was in an ancient language. Then an elf popped up. Hi, I'm an elf. Uh, yeah, I can read this shit. Translated it all. They went, it says, what now? <laughs> and that and that elf um uh, suffered an accident, pure accident, and fell off the top of the uh, monastery by mistake onto her Gravity's own sword. Gravity's a bitch. <laughs> onto her own sword at the bottom. Who'd have thought that that She's, was possible? Wow, well, she shot herself in the back of the head six <laughs> times. Terrible yeah, accident. Um. So, cut a long story short. Um, the Leoricans suddenly changed. Where beforehand they were a monastic separated unit, they suddenly aggressively expand and go purely for warfare. They are all about teaching people how to handle war. They fight hard for this. They start working in the local universities in Tilia and Estalia, promoting, really promoting, teaching how to handle war. And they become central figures when it comes to end-time events, as uh, Leorican taught warlords uh, come to dominate for one reason or another. Um, the scrolls, deeply heretical, eventually get 
buried in a monastery outside of Nuln, the Dark Maiden Monastery. And nobody that's living knows they're there. So his eighth question is, is the Dark Maiden's Testament and the Last Testament of Namad the Black the same thing? Is the Dark Maiden's Testament and the, and the last, yes, I could even tell you what it was. But I'm not going to. Because it will be in my streamed game. Oh, okay, so go watch so, Lawhammer Hammond. <laughs> there is, Which I'm there sure is no are. answer to this because I didn't write the answer in because I wanted individual GMs to be able to make up their own answer here. That's ultimately what it was for. So if you wanted to use this weird, obscure, battle-focused order, you could. Um, there's these old testaments of Namud the Black that say something that fundamentally terrified all of these monks and made them change their mind as to how their whole order should represent. They went to war effectively. Now, the reason as to why and what's in there isn't known. I have my version and my version will come up during the Empire and Ruins segment of my campaign. Mm. Sounds to me very similar to the effect that uh, Necrodomo's scripts had on Archaeon. Or, does or a little, doesn't it? Yeah, it does a little. Uh, so he also asked, uh, we'll just do Hammond's questions. 10 and 15 until, too, until please, we, Hammond. <laughs> until we close up here. Um, uh, he says 10 and 15, the rest aren't too serious. He just literally popped up. Thank you very okay, much, Hammond. 10 and 15. Super okay, cool. so 10 says, the monastery of the Dark Main that's in the Grey Mountains of Wizenland sounds pretty huge. Yes. Would you yes. please do an unofficial updated map, Andy, please? I'll, I'll do anything. Okay, right. Um, I think I might actually, because this, uh, this location is central to certain end times plots, at least as I view them. And I did the original map as a tiny little notebook in the Tome of Salvation ages ago, and it's pretty rubbish. Um, uh, and I'm thinking of using it as a potential conflict point, which means I'm going to need a map anyway. So let's say, sure. And then his 15 one is, is the pilgrimage of the soldier essentially Warhammer Hodge, or is it something more? I mean, it, it. I would not like to say yes. I think the answer is it's something different, not something more. Um, Hajj is such a fundamental aspect of a real-world religion, so you don't like lifting that sort of thing and dropping it down. Is it an inspiration for certain aspects? Definitely, but is it an equivalent? No. Okay, and then I'll just grab uh, just a handful of little things here. Uh, okay, Fader, we already asked. I think we already answered your question. Just want to say thank you. Uh, we already answered that. Sweep the leg. Thank you. Um, uh, we already, besides the Empire, does anyone else have significant worship of uh, Mermidia and other parts of the world? Uh, yeah, yes. there's Mermidia stuff in Bretonia. Um, the, the, the Lady of the Lake, um, the Knights of Bretonia are actually pretty open to gods as long as they kind of fit along with the laws of chivalry. Mermidia fits very nicely within the laws of very. chivalry. Um, there are like slight conflicts when it comes to like what weapons should be used in certain tactics. But like the Knights of Bretonia are very open to a lot of that. And uh, I would be shocked if elements of Mermidia have not made their way to Grand Cathay, the Kingdoms of End and other nations, To it, especially at least her treatises on war. They would probably yeah. find very interesting. Yeah, Sun Tzu gets everywhere. I think um, one way to view it is because I once had an argument behind the scenes about this one where they were like, yeah, but why would anyone worship uh, Mermidia outside of Tilly and Estalia? Because it's from there. And to which I said, uh, Jesus Christ, what? <laughs> <laughs> seriously did you just say that and he was like oh, oh uh. um and then he all of his argument just deflated yeah because, there would probably be yeah. some very the, cool shit oh go ahead uh, yeah and the tillians are one of the maritime uh groups of the old yeah world. they're one of the most uh, as are 
as are the Estallians. And then you might not get much about them, but they are known for their maritime capabilities. That yep. being the case, you're going to find enclaves all the way around the Southlands, end to end, around the world. So the answer is yes, definitely. Hell, even overland travel. Who's the first people that yeah. got to Cathay overland? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's going to be a whole host of shrines to Remedia down that entire length. Yeah, so yeah, you would find Mermidia literally everywhere. Um, there'd actually probably be some, with the new Cathay lore we have, there could probably be some really cool shit about how the Cathayans would very much value her treatises on war and stuff, while also the dragons being like, no gods, no god worship, but we do find your books very interesting on warfare. <laughs> so we'll be all that in, um, which could actually have some really interesting conflict of people like valuing Mermidia within Cathay, but they're not illegally allowed, they're legally not allowed to worship her. Um, but maybe secretly they do. Uh, that could actually be really fun and interesting. Uh, um, let's see. I'm just uh, going to bring this one and say, I agree. Britonia is a tougher ask. There's a lot of complication there, but that's it. That's all I'm going to say because because of the hour. Yes. Uh, play around with it. Have fun with it. Uh, yeah, because, well, the Bretonians are weird with how they interact with a lot of things. Cause the lady of the lake throws a giant fucking wrench into yeah. a lot of the other cults. It's complicated. Um, and it also doesn't help that their lore hasn't been updated in forever. And the addition that their lore was last really touched on didn't help because it was very oh, jokey in a lot of ways. Um, six edition was eh, oh, sorry. It there, <laughs> weird shit happened. Um, yeah, they they missed out on a lot of updates. I'm really looking forward to the old world and what they're going to do with it. And I'm also yeah, scared, too. but we'll see what happens. Uh, me too. Uh, let's see. The video will probably be gone. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, this is actually a really cool question. Um, huh? Jiggy asks, would you, uh, is the art of how Mermidia is depicted universal in her cult, or do the Talaeans and Nostalians have different definitions of what is beautiful on how they portray her, and thus would Mermidia look very different based on Nostalian or Talaean artists? Definitely. Um, they're that's going to question. have, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, they're going to have very different views. For example, if you go right to the west of Estalia, where they don't even really believe that she ever manifested, it's a far more divine set of imagery, far more, let's say, heavenly, celestial, for want of a better description. Where if we move over to some of the weirder legends that you might find, where there has been a breakdown of her even being a goddess, or perhaps birthed from an egg, or perhaps came down from the heavens and uh, stepped on a stone, or whatever else, they're all going to have their own um, unique versions. What's certain is that they're going to be depicted probably as a local, because that's the nature of it. So whatever particular local ethnic traits that they might have in terms of their shapes or their faces or whatever, um, racial traits perhaps might be better, although that's a poor word to use here. Um, but black hair is almost universal. Um, young is almost universal. Unlike Verena, where she's generally seen as a very handsome older woman, she's generally always depicted as young. But beyond that, it could be almost anything. Uh, Half Crown asks, uh, so based on what we talked about in the Volkmar stream about how well the Sigmarite cult is structured with listening to uh, the grand, whoever the Grand Theogenist is, if uh, uh, the uh, La Ultima, Isabella, Giovanni, Lucini were to call upon the cult, like where she were to demand everyone do something, how many of them would actually answer her? That depends entirely on the situation at hand and also the current state of the cult. To think of this cult as um, one body with one thought is a complete mistake. At some points, 
parts of the cult hate other parts and other points they just dislike them while other parts hate other parts it's not just two sides it's like a thousand th sides however if she calls most will answer hmm. the problem is it's the pressure not to the, the the difficulties that will come with it it's huge it's not a small ask it's yeah, it's not it's, like the, it would need to be for a damn good reason and that's why the end times is, if anything, even more disappointing because that's when she would have. That's when she would have gone past all the politics and gone, nah, we have to. Yeah, uh, so Half Crown's uh, next question, which I do think has some interesting things, is um, so I have a question about, in the real world, a lot of the historical fencing manuals we have and treatises and such come from Italy, Spain, and parts of the Holy Roman Empire. So I would assume, as a parallel in the Warhammer world, most of the fencing masters and fencing manuals would be from the cult of Permidia, having made their way up into uh, northern parts of the Old World from Estalia and Talea. Would that be an accurate view yes. on it? Absolutely, although not necessarily associated directly with Myrmidia. Some of them will be, some of them won't be. Some of them will be entirely secular schools. Some of them will be religious schools. Some of them will be an order that teaches a particular type of swordplay. When we were running um, the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Settings <laughs> game, when I was running that, we were intending on adding a host of schools pretty much for each town and city book that we did. Altdorf was going to have some, Nuln was going to have some, um, Middenheim was going to have some, some of which would have been imported schools. And there was going to be, um, when we did the Marian Bird book, there was going to be around about 14 or 15 different Tilian and Estalian schools that were in the area, along with a couple of Tatean ones and a couple of Nipponese ones and similar, all of which would have um, granted you access to a different array of talents and a different array of little skilly uh, bonus extras. Um, so, cut a long story short, absolutely, but they wouldn't all be Remedian. It's a complicated state of affairs. Yep, and he does have a follow-up question that I think is good of, is there any character that comes to mind for you from real world or popular media who you think would be make excellent Mermidian characters if they showed up in Warhammer Fantasy? That's so broad that I can't... Zorro! Um, <laughs> sure. Um, I would uh, a Zorro character. It'd be fun. Okay, so something, uh, I'm going to go um, for what is generally not expected, and I'm going to go for the more philosophical side and literally go for Socrates. Um, yeah, there you go. Really different. Um, someone who is a philosopher who is deeply intelligent and you'd immediately attach to something like Verena um, uh, with uh, Verena's search for wisdom. But Socrates and the entire method that Socrates used for teaching is very, very Myrmidian. Yep. Uh, Infiltrator Troy, do any Myrmidian worshipping cultures okay. worship other war gods? Um, I didn't hear that. Uh, do any primary, primarily Myrmidian cultures worship mm -hmm. other war gods in addition to Myrmidia? Yeah, Ulrich. Um, yeah, Ul Ulrich is a god that is worshipped everywhere. Just because he hasn't got a great presence doesn't mean he isn't real, doesn't mean he's not worshipped, doesn't mean some of the older temples out there, most of the major cities will have a temple to Ulrich or at least the small shrines. He will most certainly still be yeah, out there. The world, be those... Very it's a... polytheistic. Just because you worship really? one god yeah. does not mean you don't worship um, and, them, or at least acknowledge them. And Ulrich has a different form of warfare, and sometimes his warfare is more appropriate. And Myrmidia, for all of her teachings, okay, <laughs> isn't as is not going to support you where Ulrich would. So you appeal to Ulrich. You appeal to the gods in your times of need. Yep. Uh Rowdy, um uh oh, uh, this is a cool question of uh how would Myrmidia reward her followers? Okay, there's a host of different ways of um answering that reward in what way um okay, given that straight to uh if she were to give her followers if she was going to have a 
incarnations of her blessings, like physical manifestations of her blessing. What would that look like? All right. Okay, that there's there's a few obvious ways we could immediately um, follow that through. The obvious one would be here, have yourself a nice spear stroke shield according to the type of character that you might have involved, whether they're defensive or more offensive. Um, alternatively, you might get a helm that gives you the sight of an eagle. Sight, <laughs> yeah, that's beyond cool. sight. You know, that sort of idea. Uh, 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 obvious manifestation would be an eagle. Um, a blessed eagle, which would um, sit in your arms, go out and do scouting for do you. Do you think the Birdmen of Castrazo would be big Mermidia guys? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty disappointed that they weren't directly linked directly to like the ability to fly an eagle like yeah um plus they make they make very good strong mermidian scouts as well able to look down on the battlefield and understand the battlefield not what's directly in front of you understanding the battlefield is core to mermidian battle practice um so an eagle that allows you to get effectively what a battlefield looks like from above comes back and squawks at you or some equivalent (laughs) they're all the obvious things um the less obvious things would be the more civilization-based um, stuff, like, for example, um, things that might benefit the local farming community. Um, this is much, much more of the overall requirement of humanity, life. Mm-hmm. Okay, basic life, farming, is integral to survival. Um, making shit is integral. Um, as A fundamental the- understanding of like engineering for construction. Books. Um, and they may sound like they are Varenan, but Varena is all about um, uh, a wisdom, using them correctly and understanding them, um, where the civilization aspect of it, life and ensuring that life works well together, is not necessarily the same. It's, it's influenced, obviously, but there's a lot that you can play with on that side that may not be immediately obvious and also anything to do with the sun. Yep. Also, uh, I would if if you have a Varenan character and you're like, uh, what would be like a cool divine reward for uh, a, a Mermidian, uh, like an eagle that they have, like a war eagle that yeah. like fights alongside them, or like they're somehow able to understand it in some ways. Really cool stuff there. Yeah, it's always fun. Nice little familiar. Uh, and then uh, Charles, uh, I think this can kind of be the last question because uh, we're well over time. Uh, well, and- Charles, what you got for us? So Charles' question is, is Mermidia secretly an elf? That's an interesting question. And I'll say it's interesting um, for the following reasons. Um, One, what Mermidia did is probably beyond mortal capability, which immediately makes you go, well, has someone lied? The next one, if someone was lying... Who would do it? That would be a prime example of someone who could do it. So the answer could be yes. However, I think that the realistic being past the silliness of it all is it's very unlikely unless it was some sort of divine manifestation of Latry. She myself. Um, But then um, uh, uh, to change that up a little bit and to contextualize that, since this is our last question. Um, Ladriel being the goddess of lost things, mists and shadows and trickery and a thousand masks and all the rest of it. Um, assuming that the elf and gods have all manifested in some weird way in the same way that Ariel has or Orion has or indeed Cain has or Azurin has through the Phoenix King or some equivalent. Assuming that they've all chosen themselves some sort of elfy bod out there who represents them. That would be a fine example of tricking the world. And just remember, everyone, according to the elves, 
every fucking god is just Ladriel. <laughs> they take credit for everything. <laughs> I'd you rather amusing later. <laughs> in the end times, Ladriel didn't even exist. Yay! <laughs> Listen, as, as good as the War of the Beard was, I, in my head canon, there is a dwarf somewhere who has murdered an elf because the elf looked at them and in all seriousness went, the ancestor gods were just Ladriel. <laughs> and then the dwarf shot them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, my ancestor that is <laughs> call my ancestor an elf <laughs> he's not a bloody elge now go on piss off <laughs> yeah oh man that's super fucking funny um in any event uh thank you all so much for watching we hope you enjoyed this episode enjoy. uh this was great uh if you haven't already make sure to go subscribe to uh Lawhammer and uh my channel if you'd like so much and the rookery publications a lot of good stuff on there um it, we've waxed lyrical about it and we're going to get everybody out of here so yeah, thank you all have, i have a couple have a of great little things to end on as well i'm doing uh for those of you out there who like the roleplay side i'm doing a big tutorial for roleplay stuff next tuesday it's for rookery patrons though only so if you're not a patron sorry <laughs> but, but you can get the patreon for cheap it's, <laughs> not, it's, not, it's not crazy expensive it's, no, it's, it's like very a, affordable like five dollars or something i can't remember how much it is it's very small um and you can pop in and um i can teach you how to build the the bestest npcs because that's what the i'll one be there is gonna be about. i'm really looking forward to that one. i'll be there um because we did one about locations and if you do sign up to that all the previous master classes will be kicking there for you to go watch as well um so yeah, i felt i should say that yep now i'm gonna lean back and feel accomplished because myrmidia is awesome yes as you should so thank you all again for being here we appreciate you very much thank you for all the generosity and supporting us it means the world to us really and we does. will be back next week with Ooh. something <laughs> who knows Ooh. yeah we actually yeah even we don't know because we have to <laughs> figure it out <laughs> so, so we'll see you guys later. you'll find out soon right bye bye, -bye.